And good evening, everyone, and welcome to the other side of midnight. That kind of, uh, you know, magical time between dusk and dawn where the things that we kind of ignore in daytime, we pass by and say, ah, it's too much trouble, or I don't believe that, or whatever. At this time of night, we kind of get into it. I mean, really get into it. And this morning, we're getting into something extraordinary. Now, you know that the title of tonight's show, which I very carefully thought about, and I thought to myself, is this going to be over hype? Is this going to be, you know, over the top? Is this is this too much of a good thing? No, it's not. Because tonight we're going to talk about, in my opinion, and I'm hoping of my guest, at least his whole book seems to document this position, the greatest scientific cover-up in history. And by the end of the next three hours, you're going to understand why I say that. So I'm not going to give the game away. We're going to let uh, Jim, you know, portray this extraordinary story in full color in three dimensions for you. And uh, we will go from there. In the meantime, uh, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our, our home page, click on tonight's banner, the greatest sign of a cover up in history for October 19th. I think we're going to have to change that old uh, title. We have a previous date when Jim was supposed to be with us. And for reasons that we may or may not talk about tonight, he he was unable because of conditions beyond his control to join us. So we might in future years or future months want to change that date. But tonight is the 19th of October, Saturday, Saturday night on the radio. And we have an extraordinarily intriguing adventure ahead of us. In the meantime, Scroll down on the guest page. If you click on the banner on the homepage, it takes you to the guest page. Go down below radio with pictures, or you can click on the fast links right under the uh, the Mayo banner where it says fast links to items, Richard and James. Click on me, and that will take you down. Actually, it doesn't. It's not. It's not working tonight. Weird. Oh, there it is. Okay, that will that will take you down to. Um, to some some items that I'm going to talk about. First of all, of course, you know, I'm, I'm running this week after week because it has not gone away. <clears throat> this problem, this incredible problem with, um, um, you know, the, the Bahaman disaster, the Armageddon going on in the Bahamas, it's still ongoing. Those people sat under Dorian, a Cat 5 hurricane, for two days, two and a half days, and nothing was left, just kindling and splinters and debris and lots and lots and lots of uh, very dirty, very awful, horrible water. They're surrounded by an ocean and they couldn't drink a drop. So you want to click on both of those links because the first one, of course, is some of the imagery which has been updated from the heartbreaking aftermath of Hurricane Dorian. The second link is all of the medical aid and assistance uh, that you could click on and send money. Project Hope, uh, Team Rubicon, the Bahama Red Cross, Hurricane Relief, um, the uh, Salvation Army. All those links are there. Take a look at those pictures. Imagine yourself in that situation. God help us that you never have to be in that situation. And reach to the bottom of your heart and give what you can because these people, even though you haven't seen any news stories for weeks and weeks, you know, it's, uh, it's the moving 
finger moves on. So news is following many of the things going on around the world, including Syria. But the Bahamas should not be forgotten and what those people are going through. And there's still most of them, 60,000 people still affected. Very few were able to get out to safer places. So the international relief agencies are trying to help those people that literally cannot leave because they, they don't have the wearable to leave. So if you want to, if you need to, if you feel that you want to, if your heart is moved, by all means, click on those links uh, under number two and give whatever you can because it will be incredibly appreciated. Um, let me skip through. I'm going to skip through items three, four, and five of my items tonight because those are more relevant to when we talk with uh, Jim in a couple of minutes. I want to go to number six. We made a little news in the last couple of days, and it's really interesting how everything has become so incredibly politicized. Um, For the first time in history, um, yesterday, two NASA astronauts, two women NASA astronauts, Christina Koch or Coat and Jessica Meir, began an operation to fix a electrical power system on the outside of the International Space Station, and they did a joint spacewalk. Now, spacewalks are, you know, very, very, very common, very common, as you're going to hear in a minute. But um, this was kind of interesting because it was the first time that two women have ever walked in space all by themselves to work on issues and problems of the station or the shuttle or whatever. But two women made history. Now, why is that a big deal? Because as you know, um, women have not received equal pay in our society yet. Women have not received equal acknowledgement. There are far fewer scientists who are female than male, which has nothing to do with the predilection of females over males. It has to do with academia, with grad school, with uh, much earlier, with kindergarten, with, you know, girls are encouraged to play with dolls and boys are given erector sets and train sets and all that. So the fact that we have two women in 2019 for the first time on a uh, joint spacewalk outside the uh, space station is a big deal. Now, what's interesting is that I saw some comments, including somebody who raised the issue. Why are you making a big deal? You liberals making a big deal of this. It's up to what they did and not who they are. And actually, you're right and you're wrong. Because if we never address historical wrongs in culture, in history, they never get corrected. So it's important to note that for the first time in NASA's history, in any space program's history, anywhere on this planet, two women fixed something on the space station in a joint spacewalk on October 18th, 2019. Which leads me into my second news item, if you scroll down to number seven, because a few days ago, um, cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, the first cosmonaut slash astronaut to ever in the modern era walk in space, he died at the age of 85. His spacewalk was back in 1965, and it became a cause celeb because, of course, NASA was planning within days to conduct their own spacewalk with uh, Gemini 4. 
And I remember being called by a friend of mine at EG&G, which was just up the street in Boston, the suburbs of Boston from where I was hanging out as the curator of astronomy and space science at the Springfield Museum of Science. And my friend Charlie Wyckoff had been tasked by, I forget which network, to do an analysis of the film and to basically render judgment based on his vast photographic expertise. Charlie was one of these, you know, geniuses who actually was a hell of a nice guy as well as being a genius. He developed all kinds of amazing uh, photographic film back when film was a big deal. And so, uh, among other things, he was the guy who developed films that were used by the Atomic Energy Commission to photograph uh, our nuclear test out in the uh, American Southwest, just west of me here over in uh, Nevada. He developed million frame per second cameras to record the incredible uh, fast-moving and incredibly brilliant, incredibly luminous phenomenon around the detonation of atomic and hydrogen bombs. So Charlie knew his stuff, and um, he was asked to, by I forget again which network, to do an analysis of the Leonov film, because the cosmonauts photographed uh, Leonov outside in his spacesuit. And I remember he invited me to come down to Boston, even though it's east-west, it's always down to Boston when you're over in Springfield. He invited me to come down and to kind of take a look at the film and, you know, contribute a couple of thoughts of mine, which was very nice of him. And we watched this film over and over and over again to see if there was any flaw, any indication that the Soviets, that's what they were called back then, not the Russians, but the Soviets were the Soviet Union, for those of you who did not live at a time when the Soviet Union was the second most major power on the planet. Anyway, the idea had, had been raised in some quarters that the Soviets may have faked this in the studio. So we looked at this film over and over and over and over again. And um, Leonov's exclaiming, you know, when he's outside, the earth is round. And he says, stars were to my left, right, above and below me. The light of the sun was very intense. I felt it's warm on the part of my face. It was not protected by the filter. That's the filter on the helmet. And um, he says in retrospect before he died, he says, what remained etched in my memory was the extraordinary silence. So if you click on that link, um, there's a kind of a recitation. He was only outside for about uh, 12 minutes, a little more than 12 minutes. And he had major problems getting back in because when he was in space, the suit, of course, because of no pressure outside and oxygen and nitrogen inside, it ballooned up so that he couldn't squeeze back through the hatch. So he did the only logical thing. He depressurized his suit, which back in those days, given that they were using as opposed to Americans who had pure oxygen at five PSI, the Russians tried a two gas mixture, oxygen and nitrogen. And if you depressurize too quickly with a nitrogen atmosphere, you wind up getting the bends because of the bubbles of nitrogen in your blood and attacks the joints first. So he had a serious issue with nitrogen boiling in his blood, but he said in retrospect, he said, I had no choice. It was either that 
or not get back in and obviously die in space. So he depressurized his suit. He did not get serious bends. He did get some discomfort, but um, it all worked and it was it was a it was a real mission. So the Russians, the Soviets beat everyone into uh, spacewalking. And for, for Andrew Curry, if, if Andrew's listening, Andrew is our kind of resident artist, as you know, at the other side of midnight. Layanoff also was known to be a very, very good artist. And like um, Alan Bean, when he came back, there's something about space that triggers this artistic gene in those folks, even if they're engineers and cosmonauts. And he did a lot of paintings and sketches afterwards. In fact, at the bottom of that story is a picture of him um, up, uh, on the uh, Apollo Soyuz test project where he was the commander of the Russian side, um, showing a sketch he did. I think that's Tom Stafford. He was a damn good artist. He was the first world modern era spacewalker, and he died a few days ago at the reasonably young age of 85. I mean, 85 these days is not that old. and It's a shame he's no longer with us. But on the anniversary of his of his uh, spacewalk, um, the fact that we had two American woman cosmonauts, uh, cosmonauts, astronauts yesterday for the first time in space after layoffs walked, you know, over 50 some years ago, tells you how slow culture moves, even in the 20th and 21st centuries. So, um, okay, without further ado, let me introduce my guest of the morning because we have an awful lot to talk about. James DeMeo, Dr. James DeMeo, formerly studied the Earth, Atmospheric, and Environmental Sciences at Florida International University and the University of Kansas, where he earned his Ph.D. in 1986. At KU, he openly undertook the first graduate-level natural scientific research specifically focused upon Wilhelm Reich's controversial discoveries, subjecting those ideas to rigorous testing, with positive verification of the original findings. DeMeo subsequently undertook drought-related field research in the arid American Southwest, in Egypt, Israel, in sub-Saharan Eritrea, and Namibia. His work on Sahara Asia questions resulted in, um, well, it was the most ambitious global cross-cultural research study to date on the subjects of human behavior family and sexual life around the world, and particularly in arid desert areas. Dr. DeMeo's published works include dozens of articles and compendiums and several books, including Sahara Asia, the Orgone Accumulator Handbook, and In Defense of Wilhelm Reich. He was editor of On Wilhelm Reich and Origami and Heretic's Notebook and of the journal Pulse of the Planet, as well as being co-editor for the German language compendium Nach Reich, New Frischung zur Ogonami. DeMeo has served on the Faculty of Geography at the University of Kansas, Illinois State University, University of Miami, and the University of Northern Iowa. His past or current affiliations, take your pick, include membership in the American Meteorological Association, the Society for Scientific Exploration, Arid Land Society, the Natural Philosophy Alliance, Sigma 11, International Society for the Comparative Study of Civilizations, 
and the AAAS. That's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. His latest credit, of course, is this book we're going to talk about tonight, which I think in all fairness may be his magnum opus. It's called Correcting a Major Error in Modern Science, the Dynamic Ether of Cosmic Space. Without further ado, welcome back to the other side, Jim. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for inviting me again. Well, this is one hell of an intriguing topic, and it's it's almost impossible to know where to dive in. So maybe we should do this kind of chronologically. When did you, with that really eclectic background, when did you get intrigued with the idea that space is not an empty, 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 empty vacuum? Well, uh, subjectively, I uh, when I was a kid, I was the kid on the block who had a microscope and a telescope and uh, wasn't too interested in sports, I, although I loved baseball. Um, and when I later in science classes in, in school, they started talking about empty space. I, it just was a puzzlement to me. Years later in the university, when I was in an undergraduate uh, in the university, I read about Keither, of course, in detail, as most every science-oriented university student will. And they were saying that this disproved the ether, and the ether was understood uh, and described, of course. And so they said it was disproved by the Michelson-Morley experiment. And then then, uh, there was this curiosity of statements about another scientist by the name of Dayton Miller, who they said, well, he got positive results, but, you know, it was just temperature effects. Hmm. So this piqued my interest, and I, I actually went back and I read the original research papers of Michelson Morley. Now, how old, how old were you then? That was when I was uh, a teenager. Ah. Probably around uh, 18, 19, something like that. And, uh, you know, in dis- disbelief, uh, what I read, Michelson Morley said they got a positive result right in their 1887 paper that everybody's always quoting, but apparently very few people have bothered to read. And so wait, wait, wait. wait. If if you were eighteen, nineteen, you had to find that paper by going to a library. Remember those folks? You know, big place, lots of books, magazines, newspapers. So you well, I, just had access, I had access to the University of Miami Library and the Miami Public Library, which was pretty good. And uh, some of the some of the books I was reading. Um, gave uh, copies of the of this paper by Michelson Morley. In particular, there was one called The Ethereal Ether by a, a historian, <laughs> um, Swenson, I believe it was his name. And he uh, he reproduced this paper in the back of his journal. Ah. And it's ironic that he, in the front, in the pages of it, not, not his journal, his book, uh, in the pages of the book, he's describing how the ether was not proven by them. But then you go back and you read what Michelson Morley wrote. And uh, it's, uh, it's very clear that they said that there was something detected. And uh, I'm just while I'm talking to you, I'm looking for the exact quote here. Because uh, I think it deserves just to in the Michelson Morley paper. Now that was Albert Michelson. And what was Morley's first name? Uh, Robert Morley. Robert, okay. Albert Michelson, Robert Morley, okay. Now, you're 19, you're reading this, and this is your first encounter 
with something we're going to talk about a lot tonight, which is the cognitive dissonance of academic science, where whatever is actually published is completely misrepresented by those people publishing it without a trace of of irony or a trace of embarrassment or whatever. Because this guy who wrote this book, he said, oh, there's no such thing as ether. And in the back of the book, he publishes, reproduces the paper by Michelson and Morley that said, there is such a thing as ether. How at 19 did you reconcile those two irreconcilable positions? Well, first of all, I w- let me correct something I said. It's Edward Morley, not Robert. Edward. It's Albert Michelson and Edward Morley. Ah. Um, I read this stuff and scratched my head. Uh, at that time, I was uh, out, of, out of high school and joining in a rock and roll band. <laughs> so it was, it was not exactly like I, I put this at the forefront of, my, uh, uh, of what to do. I, I was a rebellious teenager, and uh, I read this stuff with great interest, but uh, it sort of got put in the back of my mind until years later, when I, a couple of years later, when I uh, decided to go back to college. And uh, so in the university... Um, starting out at Florida International University for my bachelor's degree, and that's where I began to put more detail to this. And uh, part of part of what you say is true that uh, that there's certain kinds of denial mechanisms that kick into the mind of of science, which at the time of science, when I was a kid, when you were a kid, the idea of empty space and a dead universe was fact. I mean, nobody taught it differently. They all said, everybody said that ether did not exist. There's no energy in space. And nobody had any reason to question it. Um, Well, wait, let me ask you you another question then. Because when I was growing up, and I guess we're roughly the same age, the thing that struck me about the relativity thing, Einstein and all that, is Einstein talked an awful lot about the properties of space. It's capability of being warped, its capability of showing shifting stars near the sun because of gravity, its capability of changing orbits because of this warpage. And I always thought naively, well, if something can warp, it's got to have, there's got to be a a kind of a there there. There's got to be something, a substance that's being warped, even if you call it by a different name. So I always thought that the ether had merely morphed in terms of language to warpable space, but there still was a there there. Yeah, well, Einstein later, uh, you know, his, his, the progress of his theory is, is rather convoluted. He, at one point, uh, made a lecture where he, he said that the ether could exist or does exist, but it has to be something with no properties whatsoever and cannot, it can, cannot affect light. And yet these experiments that we're talking about, the ether drift experiments, these were designed to detect very slight uh, changes in velocity of light depending upon the direction in which it moved and to in order, in order to detect this, the direction of the Earth's net motion in space. So you, you were trying to figure out where in which direction the Earth was moving and how fast by by measuring the variations in the speed of light as it moved in one direction versus another. And uh, the original expectations that were handed down 
over the years to the to Michelson Morley when they did their experiment in 1887 was a concept of a static ether. In other words, that the ether was like some kind of a smooth uh, thing that existed out in space with no wrinkles or or, or uh, variations in it. Like and a very uniform jello, extraordinarily uh, Something like that. It was a, a, a but it had no it had no uh, real um, properties other than it was a, a medium for the, for the uh, transmission of light waves. And for those who, who are struggling with the issue of ether, maybe I could just mention this, that the, the ether was proposed to explain the wave properties of light. And in the same way that when we speak about sound waves, it requires a medium, and that medium is the air. Sound waves do not transmit through a vacuum. Mm. Uh, and water waves also wave in the water. You, you can't have water waves without the water, obviously. So if w light exhibits the properties of wave motion, it can be reflected, refracted, interfered, and, and so on. What's the medium through which the light from the stars is come and the sun is coming down to us from Earth, or just for transmission uh, in the at the surface of the Earth? You can light will transmit right through a vacuum, unlike sound. Mm. And uh, so, who was the first question. scientist to propose this this static medium, which transmitted light as waves? Oh well. Um, I think maybe you'd have to go back to uh, the period even before Newton. I mean, Galileo was speaking about the ether, um, Kepler, uh, Newton, of course. And Newton, uh, before Newton, the idea of ether was as a uh, ubiquitous force in nature, a prime mover that was responsible in part for the, for the motions of the universe. Hang on, hang on. But How do you define a prime mover? Well, the, one of the questions of the philosophers, going back to the ancient Greeks, is where does all the motion of the Earth come from? You, know, you, you have the, the planets and the stars uh, move, and the heavens move over, over us on a 24-hour basis, and the motions are regular and systematic, and there's, there was philosophical questions raised about the origins of motion in the universe. So uh, ether was something that was originally considered to be something, uh, well, if you go back to the Greeks, it was the name of the heavenly air that the gods breathed, as opposed to the normal air down here on Earth for us mortals. Uh, so you find that the old archaic ether, spelled with an A, A-E-T-H-E-R, had uh, certain uh, religious and, and philosophical connotations. Uh, with Galileo, you, you begin to see more feet-on-the-ground kind of uh, attempts to understand this. He was actually one of the first ones to try and measure the speed of light. Um, he did so by having uh, 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 somebody stand on a hill uh, at a distance at night, and Galileo would open his lantern to that other person, and then the other person would then open their lantern and then Galileo would shut his, and the other one would shut his, so that he could get a, a rough guesstimate of the speed of light. And uh, by this, he he uh, he argued that the speed of light was probably something like around six times faster or ten times faster than the speed of sound. And he had done 
experiments with the speed of sound by having somebody fire off a pistol on another hill after he had fired his own pistol. Mm. So he could gauge the time going out and coming back and divide that by two and knowing the distance, he could figure the velocity of sound. And it was very, very approximate, of course. But when you when you start coming to Newton, he's really the, the genius expert on optics and, and so many other things. But he um, he uh, he embraced the ether concept when he was younger. I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. James DeMeo. We're talking about his magnum opus where he covers from A to Z the history of the explorations of an invisible medium in space that you're going to find out by the end of the morning does an awful lot of stuff that's done by a lot of other theories and does it very elegantly, very simply, and most critically has been measured as opposed to everything you've read in every modern textbook on the subject. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, October 19th, the other side of midnight. We're talking about cosmic stuff tonight. Is there a medium permeating all time and space, the pores of 
even supposedly solid matter that somehow is involved with or maybe even governs their motions around other objects, their rotations, their spins, their interactions as what used to be called ponderable bodies. We're getting into all of this tonight because it has, if this stuff, if this ether is real, if the last century or so of textbooks is really, 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 really wrong, it means that modern science is wrong, that the foundations of what we think we know have been limited. And one of the questions that we're going to get into tonight is, has it been limited by ignorance or has it been limited by design? Jim, you're back. Hello. Um, one point I, I, I feel I should make, um, nothing I'm going to say here tonight invalidates the factual record of, ex, of experimental science. What is, in, is challenged are the, the major theories of astrophysics which attempt to explain the data. So the, the observations of the astronomers are real, and there's no, no question about that. But the question is, how are they explaining things? And they're explaining things on the basis of a, a empty space and a dead universe. And that is what is at issue. Because when you start looking at the history of the ether experiments, you find that they aren't showing negative results. Some of them are, but a lot of them are not. And uh, as to the reasons why the Michelson-Morley experiment had been rejected at the time when it was first brought out, this I was, I was elucidating that Newton, years earlier, about 100 years earlier or more, um, he had elucidated the ether uh, firstly as something quite tangible that could, could be uh, seen in optical phenomenon. But as an older man, he began very preoccupied with religion and the hereafter. And what happened was, is he, he's reading the Bible and he's getting the view that um, from the Bible, it, it's saying that God created the heavens and the earth, put it all into motion, breathed life into the cosmos. Um, but that was all that Newton wanted to know. And when ether was being considered as a ponderable medium, which moved, which caused movement of the heavenly bodies, this he objected to. And uh, he's in his queries in a major book call, called Optics, which has, is filled with wonderful genius insights. On this issue of the cosmic ether, he just basically says flat out, it is unphilosophical to question uh, what's in the holy books, uh, a holy book, the Bible, on the question of how things move. Richard C. So the, the ether was made static and immobilized, even though he accepted it as uh, the medium through which uh, light waves moved. But then, you know, even later still, he got away from light waves and started talking about light as a shower of particles. So you have the particle theory of light on the one side is coming uh, it's coming up since Newton and other people are arguing for light waves and to the modern times where we get to sort of a mutual agreement that there's particle waves or wavicles they call them uh, which I think is a mistake but that's another question 
the the whole point being that the ether was was considered as a real thing and discussed by all the top scientists of the period of the 1800s up until the 1887 experiment of Michelson-Morley, but they were almost all in agreement that the ether was something that uh, was static, which the Earth moved through it, much like a bullet moves through the air. So they were expecting a very high velocity of ether motion. Now, Michelson-Morley found a, a slower velocity of ether motion than what everybody expected, and this led to misinterpretations that, well, the, the velocity was, some said it was too slow, and therefore the ether didn't exist. This was the big error, because there was well, theories... Well, give us some numbers. What were they expecting, and what did they actually find? Okay. And in the numbers, is it because the actual number was so low compared to their expectations, they basically doubted the It was a reasonable readout. percentage. It was a reasonable percentage. Let me give you an example. The original experiment of Michelson-Morley was aiming to detect the 30 kilometer per second motion of the Earth rotating around the sun. Okay. Okay, that's the speed approximately at which the Earth is moving around the sun, 30 kilometers per second. And what they obtained, as I'll just, I'll just quote here from their paper, they say the displacement to be expected was uh, 0.4 of the fringe value, which is the reading that they're making when the actual displacement was a 20th part of that. And they're saying the relative velocity of the Earth and the ether is probably less than one-sixth the Earth's orbital velocity and certainly less than one-fourth. Now, when you do the, a little bit of arithmetic on that, it's a velocity of 5 to 7.5 kilometers per second. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not nothing. It's something, and it's significant. 5 to 7.5 kilometers per second is a fantastic speed. Well, wait, wait, wait. If, if we're dealing with something like 20% of their expectation, is that true? Approximately, yeah. Okay. There are modern, modern scientific experiments where huge papers and Nobel Prizes are awarded for by percentages like 0. .0001. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, it's nuts. Yes. Why would they ignore an actual, real, reproducible, pretty, I mean, five, you know, kilometers, seven kilometers per second is faster than anybody could ever propel anything in that era. It should have because blown the, them away. The issue of the ether being static was so ingrained in people's minds. If you start talking about emotional ether, then it, it has to be involved in gravitation. It has to be. There's, there's reasons for that. And if you're talking about a gravitational ether that is moving the planets along, this is heresy. This is major heresy. And so it's a lot easier to throw out the result of Michelson-Morley, what they actually measured, and ignore it, than it is to suddenly find yourself – it's like you think you're standing on solid ground and then suddenly you, you find you're, you're free-falling through space. You know, you, everything you thought was true isn't, at least on the basis of theory. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Isn't that the objective of science, to find of stuff? Of course it is. Nobody – I mean, why do scientists, even in that day, which was much less politicized than it is now – with federal money and huge grants and, you know, publisher parish and all that nonsense. Why didn't somebody of that era, more than somebody, somebody's 
look at this and say, oh, my God, we've just discovered something amazing. Well, there actually were. I mean, there were there were scientists of that era, such as Stokes. Uh, of of famous so Stokes well. Law. And uh, um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, Lawrence actually originally thought about the ether as something that could condense around the planets to a thicker value, value and move with the rotation of the planets. So wait, wait, wait. Uh, you, you made a jump. If, if we're not moving through a static ether where the full wind, the ether wind, is blowing in our face and they would get the 30 kilometers per second if they were on the right side of the Earth facing its forward motion, and they're yeah. getting a much less velocity, what was the obvious logical interpretation if the reading was taken as not an instrument failure but a real reading? The, the logical... Um argument was that the ether itself had material substance. It wasn't just for transmission of light. It had material substance sufficient that when the earth moved through it, that a layer of ether condensed around the surface of the earth and became thicker and therefore slowed down in its velocity. So it was not like a cannonball moving through a smoke-filled room where the smoke doesn't affect the ball at all. The ether was like actually a, a, somehow like a, the ether was a large somehow metal ball. If you can imagine a large metal ball being dropped into a bucket of honey, mm-hmm. and it suddenly small, slows down, and there's a layer of honey that's sticking to the ball as it is moving. So the new idea would be if the readings were real, and most people said they're not, but those that did, okay, it means the ether somehow has to interact with the earth, with matter. That's right. It isn't exactly. just this immobile thing that's out there surrounding everything and totally frictionless, totally non-interactive, totally non-conductive, totally doesn't even know the earth exists. There had to be some relationship, some interaction between the two. And that explained exactly. the much lower reading that Michelson Morley got compared to the expectation. Yes. But And it's very interesting that Michelson-Morley knew this, and they also wrote that um, it's just uh, – I'm not going to quote exactly here. I'll, I'll sort of paraphrase. They say that uh, it is just possible that if we moved our instrument up to the top of a high mountain, that we would get a higher velocity. Well, wait, wait, wait. you mean he suspected that the readings might change if they could get high enough to where the entrainment, the in, the the interaction right. between the Earth and, and the ether was less? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. And um, they said that this the experiment, to remove all doubt, you ha- we have to re- do this experiment on a high mountain at four different seasonal times of the year. So we know what the variations might be in the seasonal uh, variation in ether drift. Now, they never did that. What? They never whoa, 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 whoa. Why not? Well, uh, reasons of personal change. Uh, the the whole subject was suddenly grasped by the physics establishment as proof that the ether did not exist. These were younger. Uh, at least Michelson was a younger guy, and uh, I think you know when I read through his biography and read through the experiments. Um, 
they only did six hours of data collection over four days. That's, that's another thing. 36 turns of their interferometer. Wait a minute. You're talking about a paper that became the cornerstone of all science. There's no either. And it's based on a lousy six hours of data 100 plus years ago? That's right. July 8th, 9th, 11th, and 12th in 1887, a grand total of 36 turns of this interferometer device that Michelson built. And the interferometer is a wonderful instrument. It's still used today for all different kinds of things. But um, no, later, I remember. I remember from when I was your age, growing up, nineteen, that kind of thing. That Albert Michelson, for me, beyond the Michelson-Morley experiments, claimed the fame was because he designed and put on the hundred-inch telescope on Mount Wilson the so-called Michelson stellar interferometer which actually measured the diameter of the first stars from Earth. Remember, stars look like they're just points of light because they're so far away. And he found an actual appreciable diameter of Betelgeuse, the bright red star on the upper left-hand shoulder, uh, right-hand shoulder of of, uh, Orion. And, And there's this big kludgy thing sitting up on top of the open tubular telescope, the 100 inch and, that's where I first encountered Michelson, who was a genius of mechanical design. And you mean when he said in this paper, well, we need to do the interferometer ether measurement up on top of Mount Wilson as a work in progress. Nobody paid attention to the author of the paper that it's not done yet, guys. It's we have more to do before we can say anything definitively. Well, there were people who took note of it and who didn't agree with the static ether interpretation. Um, But unfortunately, they were not the top people in the sciences of the day. Um, Now, there was a younger fellow, Dayton Miller, who was up and coming at that time. He was a Ph.D. graduate from Princeton University Physics. Um, He got his dissertation by making his own telescope observations of comets and calculating their orbits. (laughs) Mm. This guy was a top-notch experimentalist, and he eventually became the the chairman of the physics department at Case Western University. Uh, This this is in Ohio, right? This is in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. And that's the place where Michelson Morley first did their experiment. Morley was uh, a professor of chemistry at uh, Western Reserve University, whereas uh, Case School of Applied Sciences was at the same location. Today they are merged together, but back then they were not. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Miller wound up as the the chairman of the physics department at Case School of Applied Science. And he, he became deeply interested in the ether question and partnered with Morley. There's a series of experiments by Morley Miller. Uh, And Morley Miller built a much bigger interferometer. Uh, And from 1902 to 1905, they engaged in experimental work with it. Something like 995 turns of the interferometer. Oh my God, compared to to 36. Compared to 36. And uh, they determined as calculated, 7.5 to 10 kilometers per second of hmm. ether velocity. Now, and wait, wait. This how, should... how, if, if the two experiments were done basically in the same location, the same city, 
Why were the numbers a little different? Well, uh, the, the higher velocity of 10 kilometers per second was when they put the interferometer, which is a much bigger device, a more sensitive device than what Michelson Morley used, they put it on uh, some hills near to the case school called Euclid Heights, uh, bringing it up about 100 meters higher in elevation. Oh. And they put windows around the light beam path. See, the original Michelson-Morley experiment was done in a basement location at Pierce Hall in uh, Case School of Applied Sciences. And this was a huge stone building. So they're, they're blocking the ether by taking down into this basement location. Nevertheless, they, they recorded this uh, 5 to 7.5 kilometers per second. Mm -hmm. That was Michelson Morley. Mm -hmm. Now, Morley Miller reproduced the experiment in the same basement location, and that's where they got the lower figure of 7.5 using a much more sensitive device. But when they took it out another 100 meters higher in elevation up on a hill at Euclid Heights, and they, they made the wind, they put windows, glass windows, all around the, the structure. It was a little hut that they built, an <laughs> octagonal hut, actually. They put windows all around the structure at the level of the light beam paths in the interferometer. On the theory the that stone would slow down the ether and, and glass, because it carries light through it transparently, would slow it down a lot less. A lot less, exactly, exactly. And that's when they got the higher reading on Euclid Heights. Now, wait, wait, wait. Problem, all right, so we go from 7.5 kilometers per second in the basement to 10 kilometers per second is a high level uh, on the hill 300 feet higher with glass windows. So now you've got two points on a graph. What did they extrapolate if they could get up to a mountain thousands of feet tall? Well, that, there was a lot of speculation about that. Uh, but you, honestly, for, for the amount of data so far, and I, I never read of anybody making an altitude velocity computation. I did this in my book, and I think it's one of the first, uh, well, it's actually the second time somebody made an altitude velocity computation based upon a number of ether drift experiments. That it seems like such a natural, so, again, there are huge holes in this story, Jim. It sounds well, to I'm me like you're not, <laughs> we're, we're not dealing with just ignorance and knowing we're dealing with some kind of conscious design to suppress knowing. Well, we're getting to that point. And the, remember, the Morley-Miller experiments, we went from Michelson-Morley in 1887 to Morley-Miller in two, uh, 1902 to 1905. Now, what happened right after 19, or in 1905? Didn't, didn't Einstein get a Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect or something? Yes, but that was years later. In 1905 is when he publishes... Oh, that's when he published Relative. And these are considered by modern physics to be the four papers or five papers uh, by Einstein which changed the world. Okay, They, they, they say Michelson-Morley was fundamental for Einstein, and, but then Einstein changed the world because his theory of relativity requires you to make this metaphysical leap into the imaginary world of space-time warps and things like this, and to negate the existence of the ether. So there was a battle that was set up between, uh, over the subsequent years after Morley Miller, between the results that they got, which was tangible experimental results made in the United States, 
versus the physics mandarins in Europe. We're talking about the Royal Society. We're mm -hmm. talking about the top guys, put top in quotation marks, uh, like Lawrence, like Fitzgerald, who, uh, what did they do? They said the reason why the, the Michelson-Morley got a null result, they're, they're interpreting it as a null result, a zero result. 7.5 kilometers per second is zero to them. Uh, 7.5, yeah. For, from uh, 5 to 7.5 is the upper range of what Michelson-Morley detected. Now, Lawrence and, and, uh, and, and uh, Fitzgerald, they just ignored the Morley-Miller stuff. They're, they're, they've been speaking about Michelson-Morley nonstop as a null result. And they're, they're arguing uh, this contraction theory. They're saying that w they're still believing in the ether, but they say we weren't able to detect it because when the ether is flowing through matter, it compresses it. And for the interferometer, it compresses the ether exactly the amount that's necessary for the results to be null. So they're claiming that because of the motion of the Earth through space, there's a physical contraction of the light beam mirrors in this gadget called the interferometer in the direction of motion that exactly should cancel out the motion through an ether which makes it undetectable, which makes it scientifically irrelevant. Exactly. Now, the, the, the fact that they actually got a result negates the necessity well, yeah. for the Lawrence uh, Fitzgerald. See, contract. this almost sounds, Jim, like the deep state of physics with its heavy hand could not allow a positive result because of what? What was the underlying reason for dismissing real measurements of a real universe with real results? Well, I'll tell you my my understanding of it is it's the character structure of the of the individual. The ether is two feet on the ground. Too much of having your feet on the ground. It's it's something you can breathe and you can look up at the cosmos and you can be an ordinary person and you can fathom it and understand it. Suddenly, uh, that that was abhorrent to the physicist who lives in his head and who has to approach the universe as a complex set of equations that you can only understand mathematically. And as you know, in my book, I have very little math. There's hardly any serious math in there. It's just basic arithmetic to show how the interferometer works, some, some, uh, some trigonometry and so forth. But it's, uh, you don't have to have uh, tremendous maths. You know, one of the principles in good scientific method is that you use the math to evaluate for things that you already have an idea about. But if you come up with big mathematical equations and then you claim that time and space are warped, but nobody can see it, nobody can touch it, nobody can measure it actually, uh, this is where there's a failure in science. That's why I say it's been a major error in modern science. The ether was measured. It is a real thing. It's a tangible cosmic force. It is the gra it's a gravitational ether. But this changes so much that it, it's going to require a scientific revolution, uh, certainly equal to the Galilean one, especially given how modern physics today is basically a religion. It's, it's turned itself into a religion where heretics are punished, where um, having... Um, 
kind of a, a foggy metaphysical view of the world is extolled as some virtue. And as you know, in my book, if you've read it, the parts in the introduction, I have big problems with the <laughs> relativistic physicists. They wanted to get me thrown out of the university for some obscure little thing I wrote about, about the cosmic ether and a little bit critical of Einstein. They wanted to cancel my PhD and, and, and block it just because they were outraged about that. Forget Well, you, you, were, you were a heretic. nothing to do with that. I was a heretic, exactly. So we go back and to the political what... agenda, I'm thinking, because it can't just be a whole bunch of bright people who were suddenly very dumb, because even in his own historic paper, or their paper, Michelson Morley, they talk about the need to get up high because of a possible ether entrainment. So in their own paper that's become a religious icon, the idea that the ether could vary and would not be as much as expected in free empty space is already endemic in the discussion. So if you've got a lot of bright people ignoring the positive results, the only conclusion I can draw is there's a political agenda here and it was to stamp out burning ducks, i.e. an ether, because for some reason that would be anathema to a whole field of implications. I, it's hard for me to assess what was going on in the early 1900s. I can only go by what's printed in the historical records and by historians and so forth. But certainly today, I would say you're, you're right, that today we've got the skeptic clubs. We've got uh, anybody who uh, dares criticize Einstein's theories uh, gets pilloried. Uh, if you mention the cosmic ether, uh, because there's uh, prejudice against that term, you're accused of being a metaphysician yourself, <laughs> even though it's the Einstein theory that's the metaphysics. Because with the ether, it's, it's, as I'm articulating it here, it's a demonstrable entity. You can measure it with light beam interferometers. And we haven't even gotten beyond uh, Morley Miller. You know, the, the mm. next steps of Dayton Miller working by himself are mind-blowing. We will do that when we return. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. James DeMeo. We're talking about the unspeakable, that space is not empty. In fact, it's filled with a medium, not even a static medium, not like, you know, jello is a metaphor but with a medium which, as you're going to hear, swirls and moves and swoops and interacts and has extraordinary implications for everything from travel to the stars to the source of gravity itself. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. 
Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 53 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning is Dr. James DeMeo. We're discussing perhaps the most remarkable suppression, and that's my political statement. I don't know whether Jim agrees with me, but really, it looks to me, looking back in hindsight, that we've had nothing but 100-plus years of suppression of the um, very idea that space is not empty, that in fact there is a... uh, Uh, substance between the stars involved in the stars in planets in planetary and stellar motion and galactic motions and an entire panoply of forces that are not even acknowledged let alone acknowledged to exist because if that happened other things would prescind so let, let's continue with that line of thought. What would be some of the things that an ether, a real live ether, which, again, to go back to the experiments, was measured and has been measured and has been updated, as we're going to talk about later this morning, what are some of the things that it would imply for modern astrophysics, cosmology, and physics itself? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, first of all, uh, the Big Bang would would not be uh, would lose a great deal of support. Uh, black holes would not be necessary. I mean, and black holes are a real metaphysical thing. Uh, there, you know, so, there supposedly was a photo made of one, but uh, there's reasons to suspect it's uh, really just some some uh, something that they're not saying. I, I I deal with this in the book, but it's a little too complicated to summarize. Um, the interstellar medium itself, there, you hear these terms being used by astrophysics and astronomy, uh, which are very much like the ether 
in in name only, only I mean the interstellar medium, the dark matter, um, which is a mistake. Uh, there is no dark matter out there. It's uh, it's actually a, a gravitational ether that moves things along. So you don't need uh, dark matter. You don't need black holes uh, to give you gravitational phenomenon. And uh, things like the neutrinos, they're measuring neutrinos, they call it an, an ocean of neutrinos. They're so abundantly existent according to classical physics that, uh, that every little centimeter of your body has uh, hundreds of billions of neutrinos racing through it every second. And um, the physicist Paul Dirac once remarked that this is like an ocean of neutrinos. So they speak about space having a tremendous amount of energy in it, but it's spoke about as particles and different kinds of particles. Um, then you've got the cosmic ray wind is another one. They, they, they have actually measured winds of these things. The interstellar medium has a, a movement. The cosmic ray motions have a movement. The neutrinos have a wind now. The dark matter has a wind. And as I point out in my book, all of the directions of cosmic motion of these different interstellar mediums or particles are in agreement with the ether drift determinations of Dayton Miller made back in the 1920s. <laughs> hey, this uh, let, is what let me, is so remarkable. Let me stop you there because if you go back to uh, Radio with Pictures, remember the way you get to uh, our items tonight, both mine and Jim's, is you go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner for uh, Saturday, the 19th of October. It says very brightly, um, let me get it back up here so I quote it directly, um, the greatest scientific cover-up in history with Dr. James DeMeo. Click on that banner, then scroll down to my items, or you can click on the fast links if that's been repaired, and you'll see item number four. This is so amazing. Because it turns out that if you live long enough, Jim, the things that you think um, may never come to pass actually come to pass. This is a story that was posted on Live Science about 18 days ago. The title is Black Holes as We Know Them May Not Exist. Yes, and, I saw that. And the yeah. subtitle is They May Be Something Else Entirely. Let me quote a couple uh, paragraphs here because this is, this is so apropos of our discussion tonight. If you dive into a black hole, something we would not recommend, says the author, you'd likely find a singularity or an infinitely small and dense point at the center. Or that's what physicists have always thought. But now a pair of scientists suggest that some black holes may not be black holes at all. Instead, they may be weird objects chock full of, here's one of those terms, dark energy the mysterious force thought to be pushing at the bounds of the universe, causing it to expand at an ever-increasing rate. Quote, if what we thought were black holes are actually objects without singularities, then the accelerated expansion of our universe is a natural consequence of Einstein's theory of relativity, said Kevin Crocker, astrophysicist at the University of Hawaii. Crocker and his colleague described this idea in a new study published online August 28th in the Astrophysical Journal. If they are right, and the singularity of the heart of a black hole could be replaced by a weird energy flinging everything apart, that may revolutionize the way we think about these dense objects. And then you can read the rest of it yourself. Well, 
they're kind of getting close because if we replace the term dark energy with concentrated ether, are we on the right track, Jim? Well, um, I'd say yes and no. Firstly, they're, the way you, they are articulating it is totally within the, the context of empty space and the Einstein theory. So uh, a black hole with a, with a material singularity that you could walk upon, uh, so to speak, like a, like a dark planet in the center of a black hole is uh, not what the ether would be creating. But it, you have to realize that wherever they find a gravitational anomaly in astrophysics, there is no mechanism for explaining gravity or gravitational anomalies by the conventional empty space theory. So they have to postulate something that could have tremendous gravitational power. So when you have spiral galaxies with the arms of the galaxies swirling towards the center, we would talk about, in, from the dynamic ether theory, we would say that this is the cosmic ether swirling and carrying the matter with it in, in superimposing arms of, of, of cosmic energy. Now, this was the theory of Wilhelm Reich years ago, and they, of course, burned his books. You want to talk about a conspiracy? That's a real one. His book, Cosmic Superimposition, articulates this exactly clear, uh, that, that planetary motions and motions of galaxies are spiraling towards each other in a, in a great cosmic vortex. But since classical astrophysics has negated that, they have to come up with something like a black hole. So they stick an imaginary black hole in the center of the universe, which has this supernatural power to attract stuff to it. And, and that isn't enough. Well, wait, 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 a black hole's gravity is not supernatural. If all gravity is defined that way, then all gravity is supernatural. Remember Newton said he couldn't see action at a distance? There had well, to be that, a, that's there, true. There had and to be a medium. I would agree with him. I would agree with Newton on that. But the point is that um, a black hole is an imaginary object beyond gravity. Gravity is a phenomenon that we can measure, we can feel it, we can see its effects. But understanding what it is is another issue. So Einstein said it was a curve in space-time. Uh, the ether theory says it's motion of the cosmic ether that's carrying material with it as it superimposes and comes together. A uh, black hole is a completely different thing. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a place in space where matter has been contracted and gravitationally compacted so much that it's uh, almost like a singularity, like the beginning of the Big Bang or something like this. And they, because of the anomalies of gravity in the universe that can't be explained on the basis of empty space, they are literally salting the universe with millions of black holes. And it, every time you read about something, well, this is happening, but they can't explain it, or they'll say there must be a big black hole there because they can't see it. They can't document it. It's like saying uh, there's a green dragon in the middle who, who's grabbing the planets and pushing them around. Well, I can't see a green dragon either, but it's no more documented than a black hole. I mean, they've got pictures of something uh, most recently, but there are other things where they claim there's a black hole and they get no pictures at all, or they're really stretching their imagination to uh, to describe as a black well, hole anything this that is gives a part, off a little bit of energy. This is the part of your book that I guess I was a little confused by because let's let's do a thought experiment. 
let's imagine we have the earth or maybe something smaller and then we have another object and they're the only two objects in the universe okay nothing else exists if i put the smaller object next to the bigger one earth or something smaller will they come together will they attract each other or will the ether push them together like you get in an atmosphere when you have a lower pressure region between two objects and the outside air pressure pushes them together or you have an airplane with a curved surface so that the pressure below the wing is higher than the pressure above the wing so it creates lift in other words if does the ether function and i'm forgetting who the scientist was who proposed this cosmic material that was supposed to be the background the underpinnings of gravity that was rushing into all matter at at various speeds well, depending on the mass of the of the object yeah the lesage 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 yes yes it was gravitate he had a, a a particle he called the graviton that he was postulating was rushing towards all matter mm -hmm. and based on that you know you you would expect certain gravitational effects um well, in, in, the, in, in, I, I mean, in, in the in, idea. in the Lesage model, different. gravity was not an attraction; it was a push. Because if, gravity, you, if, yes. if you have two objects sitting next to each other, there would be, in the, and they're sitting in a surrounding medium, there would be a kind of a shadow shield between them, where there'd be less density of the medium than all around them. So the higher density beyond them would push them together into that less dense area till in fact they ultimately collided yes does does, does reich's ether or orgone does your ether does the more michelson morley experiment agree with an ether which is basically being pushed into the earth well lesage's theory uh, would would uh, explain gravity just as we look at it on the surface of the earth or surface of any planet or planets that would come together but it wouldn't explain uh, dynamic spiral motions that are so systematically seen throughout the universe that's where you you get the the um, ether drift experiments of Dayton Miller actually were significant enough that he was not only measuring it, the velocity of ether drift, okay, so we, but also we, determining we, the direction in which it was moving. We, we've had Michelson-Morley in the 1897. Then we had, in the early 1900s, we had uh, Morley-Miller. And now we've got Miller alone, Dayton Miller alone, and he does the best of all experiments because, among other things, he somehow finds the money to move his interferometer from Cleveland all the way to the top of Mount Wilson, which is a 6,000 foot high mountain lying just above Los Angeles. Talk about, yes. talk about Dayton Miller and the real breakthrough that he accomplished by going there. Yes, well, Miller, uh, he was, as previously described, uh, the junior member of the Morley Miller team. And they had, they had built a, a fairly, a, a much larger, interferometer uh, than what Michelson Morley had. The size are, is interesting. This, the light beam paths of an interferometer are like the diameter of a telescope lens. It, it, its light re resolving abilities are greater the longer is the light path of the interferometer. So the 
Michelson Morley instrument. So bigger is definitely better. Bigger is better in this respect. Michelson Morley had a 22 meter light path. Uh, Miller had 64. Me- Morley Miller had 64 meters, and Miller used that same 64 meter interferometer, but with many optical improvements uh, added to it and uh, control features added uh, to negate the effects of temperature and other kinds of artifacts that might appear. Now, starting in 1921, he takes this interferometer up to Mount Wilson, and almost immediately he's registering 10 kilometers per second systematically Mm. over many different turns turns of the interferometer. He returns in 1922 to 24 back to Cleveland to his laboratory where he runs additional No, wait, 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 wait. Stop you there, stop you there. When when Miller Morley did the second level experiments in in uh, Cleveland, and they moved it from the basement up to the hill, the 300 foot high hill, they got an upper level of 10 kilometers per second, right? That's right. Now Miller, years later, I don't remember how many, he moves the whole gadget improved up to the top of Mount Wilson, which is not 300 feet tall; it's over 6,000. And his upper yeah. level is again around 10 kilometers per second. In the fir- in the initial experiment, he did 1921. Yes, um, he 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 eventually makes readings that are variable, something from around uh, eight kilometers per second to around 11.5. So there's a variation, a seasonal variation, but it isn't uh, any especially great in increase well that's let me uh, stop you there because that's what that's what i'm thinking because the dramatic rise between sea level and that first 300 feet is really significant you know several kilometers per second but going from 300 feet up to 6,000 feet give or take it's only another maybe half a kilometer maybe a kilometer so it's whatever the relationship between the ether and the earth the entrainment the viscosity the stickiness it's not linear, and it needs to really be understood because, you know, when you're 6,000 feet up, you'd think it'd be almost clear sailing based on the earlier two experiments. Well, it, it you know, nevertheless, if you're speaking about an, an ether that is moving the earth, think of a, a ball, a floating ball that is tossed into a river. The river current moves along, and it carries the ball with it. So the relative velocity of the the river adjacent to the ball is very slow, even though the velocity of the river itself could be very fast. Okay. And all we can do is measure the velocity close to the earth or up on a mountain. So we're limited limited, uh, in terms of what we measure. And nevertheless, it isn't a zero. Uh, amount it's it's upwards of this 10 kilometers per second and even greater as i'll point out when i start talking about some modern replications of the uh the same interferometer experiments done by a russian named yuri galev and a um a colombian scientist by the name of hector munera okay well let's not get ahead of ourselves let's let's go back let's go back to dayton miller who somehow was able to, in the 1920s, lug all of that incredible complex equipment up that incredible dirt road from Pasadena up to the top of Mount Wilson. I mean, I've seen the pictures, the mules, and the, I mean, it was, it was incredibly primitive to even get up there in those days. Well, yes, and he, he, uh, he was well supported. By this time, 
Miller was a very mainstream guy. He was the president of the American Optical Society. He was the president of the American Acoustical Society. He was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. This guy was a mainstreamer. So he was a biggie who, uh, now. Was, pardon? He was a biggie. He was a major <laughs> player in the physics science field of the 1920s. Yes. And if, if you go back to that time period in the 20s, the newspapers of the day are are characterizing the debate between Einstein and Dayton Miller almost like a boxing match. Uh, is Einstein correct? Is there no ether? Or is Miller correct? And there is an ether. And of course, the newspapers of the day got so many things wrong, as one might imagine. But nevertheless, Miller was on the track of of showing this was a very real effect. And uh, perhaps before describing uh, exactly uh, what was going on, in 1921, this is right after Miller's first application on Mount Wilson. He says, I believe that I have really found the relationship between gravitation and electricity, assuming that the Miller experiments are based upon a fundamental error. Otherwise, the whole relativity theory collapses like a house of cards. So he admits that in print. Well, that's a letter Albert Einstein wrote to Robert Millikan in June of 1921. Who's the guy who measured the electronic charge on the electron, I think? That's right. Okay. Let me ask you another political question. How, if, if Michelson Morley in 1897... And in 1905, Einstein assumes to have settled the issue. There is no ether. It's instrumental error. It's temperature effects. It's, you know, you're smoking too much. You drank too much. It's not real. It's a null effect. How did Miller in 1921 get the significant amount of money to do a big elaborate ether experiment thousands of miles away from Cleveland? Who would back somebody who was measuring nothing? Einstein's theories were much slower to gain acceptance in the United States than they were in Europe. Like I said, Einstein, uh, the different scientists who uh, were top dogs in the Royal Society and in German science and so forth, they were they were supportive of Einstein. The ether theory was uh, something that the look primitive, dumb Americans, hayseeds, you know, <laughs> what do they know? You know, they're they're up there on top of a mountain spinning this gadget, and they think they're measuring something. You know? That that was kind of the attitude. And the newspapers um, of the day, particularly the London newspapers, they would they would um, they would bias in in the favor of Einstein, particularly after World War One. Um, well, the, the World War One was to was to have been finished shortly after, uh, before, excuse me, Miller did his first Mount Wilson experiments, and it was sort of a, a, a there. I detected some sense of people wanting to uh, or being glad about a rehabilitation of German science after the horrors of World War One. Mm -hmm. So Einstein was greeted openly with uh, with quite a bit of fanfare. When when did Eddington do the famous eclipse experiment, supposedly verifying Einstein's first big test? Uh, that was in 1919, I believe. And so uh, we're talking within played... a couple of years of that. So really, we're looking at European science, old world science, versus new world science, Americans, upstarts, and the Americans still believed it could be real. 
and the Europeans had decided it couldn't be real. So you have this huge battle, which is great for newspapers. It sells newspapers between the old guard and the new guard. Well, it's, uh, it's that element was certainly there. To what ex- extent it was uh, uh, a mechanism for uh, for changing people's minds or securing. Well, uh, look at how media plays such an I important in our roles, uh, you know, role in our society today. I would argue that media made Einstein. They created well, the icon of Einstein. Definitely, that was true. I mean, what we know about the Eddington uh, Cottingham uh, eclipse observations today is that they weren't as quite as definitive as they were presented to be. There were other people who you're, you're understating the case, Jim. Yeah, they were lousy experiments. Well, they 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 were detecting something, but the question is, um, was it greater or lesser than the Newtonian? Mm. Uh, arguments and determinations which have been accepted for a long time. I mean, the, the fact that that stars appear to be far, slightly farther away from the sun during an eclipse is, uh, it's more or less true. But the question is, what is the magnitude of it? I mean, uh, Einstein was arguing for a very tiny, tiny effect, um, which certainly when you compare it to 10 kilometers I was going to say we're back in the point one category. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. And I give you, I give the figures on all of this with a lot of detail in the book. We just don't have time to, yep. to cover in this uh, for tonight. But again, it seems to me the Eddington thing was so political, particularly because Einstein was German. The rehabilitation of German science after World War One. Very, if you, in fact, on those plates, those photographic plates. Some of the stars moved in the wrong direction, Jim, right? Yes, there were experiments uh, by others, uh, which very clearly showed that. Um, I give a citation. I can't remember the name of the fellow. Um, but the, the actual Eddington eclipse photographs were covered and discussed by uh, Collins and Pinch in their marvelous little book called The Golem. <laughs> um, and uh, in that book, they they uh, describe how um, Eddington cherry-picked the photos he wanted to use, which gave the result that he wanted. And there were other photographic plates that did not confirm what he was looking for, and those kind of got buried in archive. But if we, you know, that aside, I mean, Miller, I've, I've just mentioned the 1921 result, his most, most definitive set of experiments were not made until 1925 and 1926. And there, he made the four seasonal epochs. Oh, he finally got to do what, what should have been done in the beginning. That's right. And so he had, he had a special hut constructed with windows all around it, just like they did originally at Euclid Heights. It was at um, nearly 6,000 feet at a, at a spot near the Mount Wilson Observatory. Of way up high, and uh, and he had this interferometer which was fully insulated and it was with the best optics of the day, and he was systematically detecting the cosmic ether. Now the interesting thing is by this time when when Miller finishes this ether drift set uh, on Mount Wilson, 20, 1925 to 1926, he has made 
200,000 readings. Oh, my God. With 6,000 turns of the interferometer. For, that's for the period. Compared the to 36 for the original paper where that's the, right. the Europeans said, ah, it doesn't exist. That's right. 200,000. Wow. He had actually determined from this marvelous data set that he had the actual net motion direction of azimuth and uh, uh, right ascension and declination in the cosmos. Now, this was very important. It is very important because it's, um, it's close to the Earth's um, pole of the ecliptic. Not exactly. It's somewhat off towards um, the star Vega, which is considered to be the sun's path right now. And that direction is towards the galactic center. So he's talking about an ether drift motion that is moving through the Earth or around the Earth in a particular direction that's pushing us towards the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Hmm. And it's a small amount. It's 10, 11 kilometers per second at maximum, at least at that altitude. So the question is, um, is this an ether wind being caused by... Um, by the Earth pushing through the ether? I don't think so. It can't really be. But if you think of the ether as a dynamic, motional thing that is pushing and carrying the Earth along like a ball thrown onto a river what, current. Hold it there with the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. James DeMeo. We're talking about an ether, but not a static, immobile ether frozen in space like some interstellar jello. We're talking about an ether which has currents and spirals and velocity and differential velocities and an incredible maelstrom of variegated motions, not only in the local arena of the solar system, but on a galactic and intergalactic scale as well. It's a universe in motion. You're on the other side of midnight. My name's Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thank you. 
And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, October 19th, to The Other Side, The Other Side of Midnight. We're talking this morning with James DeMeo, Dr. James DeMeo, who has just written a remarkable new book, and I don't want to misconstrue the title, so let me get it up here. It is called, you're going to want to go out and order from Amazon or go to a bookstore, it's called The Dynamic Ether of Cosmic Space. Correcting a Major Error in Modern Science. And you all know my opinion. I don't think, James, it was an error. I think it's been by design because we're going to talk about in the next hour or so. If there really is an ether and if there's a mobile ether, if there is a, an actual uh, prime mover swirling through space, then all bets are off. I mean, there's a whole technology that could be based on this, up to and including, it's the ether that we're, that the Dayton Miller and others were measuring, is really responsible for gravity. There's an engineerable form of gravity at hand if enough research is done. By the way, you can click on the uh, link there just above uh, uh, Jim's cover of the book, and you can um, buy it right from Amazon and other places where books are sold by clicking on that link. So Jim, uh, let's go back to these amazing numbers of experiments that Miller conducted. I mean, 200,000 individual measurements. What did he find? Well, um, he found that there was um, definitely the ether had a motion, uh, depending upon the season from a time period of, uh, uh, well, I can give you the exact figures here. August 1st, fastest ether drift, 11.2 kilometers per second. April 1st, 10.1. February the 8th, 9.3. And September the 15th, 9.6. Now, the interesting thing is, is when you plot this on a, on a graphic that um, matches up the, uh, this, the Earth's motion around the sun, it, uh, it is something that confirms uh, a spiral form motion of the Earth as it moves around the Sun. It, it is not congruent if you look at the Earth moving around the Sun as a flat plane surface. But if you look at the Sun moving through the galaxy and the Earth moving around the Sun as it moves, what is it? What is that form? It is an open-ended spiral. This is something that Wilhelm Reich firstly articulated uh, most clearly, in my opinion. And uh, it's something that today more and more people are getting onto. We actually you know, have the, a, a YouTube link as your item number two in Radio yeah. with Pictures. So if you want to kind of describe that, you go to obviously the other side of midnight.com, our homepage. Click on tonight's banner for the greatest scientific uh, suppression in history. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down. Item number two in Jim's section is called the helical model. Our solar system is a spiral. Click on that. It's a YouTube uh, video. Just click on that. And Jim, kind of describe what they're going to see, because this is a stunning, beautiful computer graphic of the real motion of the solar system and the Earth and all the other planets through the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah, it's uh, it's fairly accurate. I mean, I have the, the quibbles I have are not even worth mentioning at this point. But it, it really shows... The Earth and all the planets moving around the sun, 
as spiral forms. And uh, we're, we're etching a spiral in, in pathway. And this is because, uh, according to the, the argument that I'm laying out in my book, because the ether itself moves in a spiral form. This was what Wright called the cosmic superimposition, that the, the ether has a motion that is intrinsically spiral in its nature. Why did he call it a superimposition? I've been wondering about that. Well, he was, he's talking about how matter and energy comes together in a form that, that creates what he calls a, a superimposition. It's something that you see not only in uh, cosmic forms and motions, but you also see it in, in um, plants. You see it in living creatures. You see it in such phenomena as sexual attraction or um, other kinds of physical kinds of phenomena like magnetism or opposite polarities or electricity um, attracting to each other. But there's... Um, it's all intrinsically a spiral. It's all intrinsically a spiral form, and it's not just a circle. And in, in a sense, you can you go back to um, Copernicus's ideas. He had the idea of perfect round circles. And it was Kepler who said, no, it's not perfectly round circles, but it's, uh, it's close. It's actually ellipses uh, that are being formed. And when you when you go from that to the idea of of spiral form motions, open ended spiral form motions with putting the sun into motion, then uh, it 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 gives you a completely different perspective. On as you're talking, I'm watching this video. It's an amazing video. Yes. It's now the so... variations in speed of the Earth as it goes around is significant biologically, uh, as I talk about in sections of of my book. That, um, for example, the biologist Frank Brown found that the biological rhythms of certain plants and animals varied according to cosmic factors, and that the variations over the course of the year uh, followed a path uh, with, which is matched in terms of intensity of these biological reactions, which match with Miller's ether drift velocity. Okay, let's let's kind of drill down on that. Okay. In your mind, everybody, I want you to imagine a flat sheet of paper, and you've got a compass, you know, one of those things with a point and a pen or a you know, pencil on the end of it, and you draw circles, and you open the compass to make circles that are concentric, and the inner circle, let's say, would be the planet Mercury, even though its orbit is elliptical. Make them all circles for simplicity. If you make them slightly oval so that the part of the circle is closer to the sun on one side of your sketch than the other, According to Kepler, the velocity of a planet increases when it gets closer to the sun. This is called Kepler's third law, I believe. And it decreases when the planet is farther away. Pluto, with this huge eccentricity, is the most obvious you know, participant in this dynamic in the solar system. Okay, let's contrast that now where you'd expect for the Earth and Kepler's laws since we're closer to the sun in winter in the Northern Hemisphere, I think January 3rd or so, by about a half a million miles. So the Earth's velocity relative to other stars will be higher in January than it is in July, right, according to Kepler? I have a diagram on that. Okay, now let's bring in this Michelson, Morley, Miller measurements of the actual ether drift 
relative to the Earth, and it appears to be exactly opposite. Talk about that. Yes. Well, the the as you point out, during perihelion, as they call it, the the velocities of planets are faster when you view the the motion around the sun on, in a flat plane. And then the farther the planet is from the sun uh, in uh, July, as you point out, the velocity in the flat plane by Kepler is slowest. But if you put the sun into motion, into this spiral form motion, what you see is exactly the opposite. And the Miller ether drift velocities, which are variable over the seasons, they contradict Kepler when viewed in a flat plane, but it all makes sense when you view it with the sun in motion in a spiral form. Now, wait, wait, wait. The sun so, is not spiraling. The sun is moving through the galaxy in like a straight right. line. It's the that's, planets that's, going around it that are spiraling as the sun drags them in this visualization yes. through the galaxy. Well, as I said, the visualization in that um, in that video is not exact because it's more like um, – off-centered spiral so that the, the sun is moving um, at an angle. It, it isn't moving like from your book directly up towards the ceiling. It's moving off at an angle. Okay, so, so let's, uh, all right, let, let, let's go back to that sheet of paper. If you draw your circle representing planetary orbits on a flat sheet of paper, and they're all in the same plane, the plane of the paper, the, north, the, the, the polar axis would be directly above the sheet of paper above the sun. Right, there's no variance. Those that's points. That's the, uh, the the sun's uh, or the the plane of the ecliptic. That's yeah, the center of yeah. the plane of the or the pole. And of the and plane. and if the motion of the solar system was directly 90 degrees to the orbit of the Earth around the sun, so-called ecliptic, then you'd measure a 90 degree angle between the uh, the orbit of the Earth and where the Earth's spiral is moving. But that's not what's going on. The actual angle of the motion through the galaxy is like 60 degrees to the, to the plane of the galaxy, uh, meaning the Earth's um, ecliptic, its orbit is tilted by 60 degrees. And so the motion is not toward its 90-degree point. It's, it's candid. It's offset by like 30-some degrees, Right. Yes, and it's um, this is most difficult to describe without showing people a, a picture and using uh, graphics to to explain That's it. That's the disadvantage of radio. That's why we have radio yeah. pictures. That's why I put in that. The diagram. point is, point is that um, this this idea of this kind of spiral was firstly dis well not firstly but it was described by Wilhelm Reich very nicely in his Cosmic Superimposition book, and his ideas are. In, are very much congruent with the uh, with the Miller ether drift variations in velocity. So it's in the uh, actual measurements. In the actual measurements. So when when we look at um, at the whole solar system's motion according to flat plane thinking, two dimensional thinking, um, a lot of things are not very congruent. But when you start putting things into the real motion of the Earth solar system moving towards the star Vega through the galaxy, uh, towards the center of the galaxy, then suddenly 
the dynamics of it uh, between the ether drift experiments and a whole host. I've, I've identified 17 different cosmic vectors all align up in a generally similar pattern uh, in the cosmos according to this spiraling emotional view. So, so, so Jim, when, when you say they generally line up, is the difference because there's really a difference in each measurement that's intrinsic or is it within the kind of error bars to where if we really had precise measurements, they all really line up? I would say it's the error. Errors are at work and maybe some other factors. But if we got it, if you allow me, I, I could just quickly read off what these things are. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, okay, so we start off with the northern pole of the solar system ecliptic. It's at 18 hours sidereal. Um, the modern sun's way towards Vega determined at 18.5 hours sidereal. Sun's rotational north pole axis, which is a slightly different thing than the ecliptic, 19.4-hour uh, sidereal. The center of the Milky Way itself is 17.5-hour sidereal. Miller's northern axis of, of the ether drift of 1928, by determining of all of his different experiments, is at 17-hour sidereal. Uh, the work of uh, Yuri Galev, 16 hours sidereal from his ether drift experiments. Munera's ether drift experiments, 17.5 hours sidereal. Cahill's ether vector, 17 hours sidereal. Miller's, uh, in 1931, he made a, a survey of other Earth motions determined at that time, the average of which was 18.2 hours sidereal. And these are these are values all within uh, zero to 24 hours sidereal. So they're all aligning within a couple of hours of sidereal. Now, when you say motion. time, you see, when you bring time into into a graph, people need to know the historical background. The angular measurements of the Earth in astronomy are defined by two parameters. One is called right ascension, and the other is called declination. They correspond to latitude and longitude, if you make the, the the celestial sphere, you know, with grid lines like, you know, latitude and longitude on the Earth, except you're looking out as opposed to down at a globe. And because the Earth is supposed to rotate in 24 hours, each of those right ascension lines in terms of longitude are really um, longitude in terms of a, a start point, which gives you a 24-hour clock. So when you say 18 and a half hours or 17 and a half hours, you're marking a place on the celestial sphere in inertial space, which is really oriented toward the stars with the Earth rotating around inside this imaginary sphere. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, if you drew a circle around yourself, 360 degrees, uh, you could divide it up by 360 degrees or you could divide it up by 24 separate hourly determination which so would each be 50, of, which would be 15 degrees separated between each, each one hour. 15 degrees that's yeah. correct now in, so, in, in accordance with hoagland's first law which is all science is approximate all of these multiple investigators multiple scientists multiple instruments multiple epochs you know time frames when the measurements were done they all converge within a kind of a rough approximation of the same motion through space that is That's derived right. from any one individual experiment. That's exactly right. Now, the interesting thing is when you look at the conventional science, 
Interstellar wind vector, 17.3 hours sidereal. Mm. Cosmic ray anisotropy, 16 to 17 hours sidereal. Neutrino wind, it blows across a, side, a, a range of sidereal vectors, but mostly uh, aiming at 18 hours. Dark matter wind, uh, 17 to 18 hours sidereal. So these factors that everybody is discussing in astronomy today, interstellar wind, cosmic ray, rays, uh, neutrino, dark matter, uh, they're all oriented in the same directions generally as what we see from these different ether drift experiments. So if you hold your arm at arm's length in your fist, make a fist, that's about five degrees across. I remember this because that's the first time I learned that was the width of the Big Dipper. <laughs> you know, your fist held at arm's length, about five that's degrees. Right. All of these measurements are kind of within a, a, a space on the sky that you can encompass with your fist. That's how close the averages are of all these different measurements, which is damn close given that we're not dealing with telescopes seeing a point of light. We're dealing with indirect observations of a variety of kinds which give you a, a, an approximation but not a precision it's right there yeah it's different not optical experiments in many cases cosmic ray and neutrino wind dark matter wind they're they're determined by counts on um sodium iodide radiation detector scintillation detector how can we have a dark matter wind jim when i don't know of any detection of dark matter as a particle in any experiments that i've been ever reading about well this comes from the dama project the dark matter project uh under sam gross grand sasso mountain run uh by an italian team led by rita burnaby uh it's all over the internet and uh, they deter have determined over maybe 20 years now that there is a peak in the so-called dark matter wind as detected with these uh these special particle detectors that they have and uh and and a minima with a maxima and a minima and the maxima is at this orientation when the earth turns towards the seven when the the san grasso laboratory uh, which is deep inside this mountain to shield it from uh ordinary radiations mm -hmm. um it, it shows at 17 to 18 hours sidereal so, uh, so wait, wait. if I'm, their experiment is very deep in a mountain and mountains tend to absorb and slow down ether, what are they measuring? Well, there, it's a, a tiny effect of variations in the crystal blinking of, of uh, light blue flashes, basically. Okay. That's what they're looking for is they have sodium iodide crystals uh, in a darkened cylinder and they put a photomultiplier tube on it. And whenever they get a little flash of light, the photomultiplier tube picks it up and amplifies it and gives them a count. So they figure they've got it shielded from, uh, from every possible known radiation deep down that mountain. And even in spite of that, they are getting these residual variations, which they're attributing to the dark oh, matter wind. Oh, so they're asserting it's dark matter wind. That's right. But they have just, no way of knowing what it is, really. It could be ether. So it's or, basically just a difference in flashes depending upon where the Earth is turned. That's correct. And the, the idea to call it a dark matter effect is merely within the, within the bounds of conventional theory. So much of these observations historically, going back even thousands of years, are what I would term, because scientists term it, model dependent. 
meaning you interpret your observations based on your model of reality, not on reality itself, which is not known, but your best guess at what the observation is trying to tell you, right? Well, the, the idea of empty space has been hammered into everybody's head. I remember I got this, too, when I was at the university. But I rebelled, you know. I, I, uh, I would write stuff about this, and I would, I would be told in no uncertain terms that this is totally wrong, and, you know, just forget about it, you know, uh, with an or else being uh, sort of uh, in parentheses at the end of these lectures, you know. So, um, so if the but Earth... I did I did write about these things, and now over many years I've published articles. I have an article on the internet about Dayton Miller's work, which has got a lot of people thinking. Uh, I published this new book, and even though it's been less than a month since this book is out, I'm already getting correspondence from physicists and engineers from around the world who are saying, congratulations, oh, I've right. always oh. known this was true. Oh, my God, Jim, congratulations. I thought so you'd there's... be at best ignored and at worst the subject of the kind of hate mail I've gotten for 30 years. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm experienced with that kind of mail, too. But uh, And I cannot say uh, these are not, these are people with high degrees of education you know they got phds or uh, you know and they're they're actually doing things physics engineers and so on and uh, but they're silenced they they relate their frustrations that they can't open their mouth about any of the the ideas of cosmic ether or they will be fired or they will be punished and uh, this is why i say that modern astrophysics has become a religion it is not science anymore and yet the the empirical astronomy is advancing every year we're making new findings about astronomy observations and measurements of things that are not affected by a change in theory okay in fact, we've got enhanced by a change in theory. all right we've got this gadget called interferometer which basically works because if you bounce light back and forth from mirrors over a long enough path length and you compare it to itself, the waves will either match perfectly or they'll not match. And it's the degree of not matching, which is interpreted as a difference in the velocity of one of the beams coming back at 90 degrees to the other beams, right? That's correct. That's interferometer. Okay. We've got two huge multiple mile long gadgets called LIGO and Virgo which were oh, yes. which, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of federal tax money in the United States and Washington State and in Louisiana have been spent to pour concrete and build lasers and put mirrors in place and tubes and all that. In other words, we have two interferometers for which Michelson, Morley, and Miller would drool over if they could get their hands on them. How come those oh, yes. experiments are not showing in multiple huge amounts, these fringe effects that denote a movement of the Earth through a medium? Well, first of all, one slight correction to what you say. The um, the LIGO interferometers have arms uh, two and a half miles long each. Right. And they, they bounce the light beams back and forth 280 times so that the net length of their interferometer is about 1,000 kilometers. Holy cow. 
how? That's a third of so, the width of the United States. <laughs> that's right. Now, the other thing is that they bury the, the light beams are encased in concrete and metal tubes. Which absorbs so the ether. And so that would block the ether a little bit. But, but I'm, but I'm going to say, they, if, if you have a light path that's ultimately almost 1,000 miles long, wouldn't the absorption of the ether be counteracted by the overwhelming increased sensitivity of the instrument? I believe it is. And I, I believe that they are detecting the ether. What they are calling gravitational waves is simply congruent with conventional theory. But it's just as easy to explain this on the basis of, a, of an ether phenomenon that is creating uh, interference patterns by changes in velocity of light. Okay, so let, let, me, let me get this straight. We've got a federally supported taxpayer dollar. Everybody listening tonight in the United States, your tax money is going in part to pay for these huge interferometers built in Washington State and in Louisiana. And they're claiming they're detecting gravitational waves by the shaking of the mirrors less than the, the width end of the light path. At yes. the end of the light path, less than the width of an of an atom. I mean they're, they're so measuring they sort of, incredible point oh 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 one effects, okay? That's right. Now, we're only seeing their published data because even though they're government supported and funded and taxpayer mandated experiments they're not publishing the raw data? Well, I think the raw data is probably available to people who are working inside that facility. But, you know, obviously in a multi-million dollar science facility, they're not just going to allow anybody to come walking in there. Uh, the other thing is, um, if, you, if you wanted to look at the, look for an ether drift effect, what you would be looking for is a large sidereal pattern, which would be many times greater than the um, than the tiny little result that they're getting from so-called gravitational waves. So first of all, I think what they're detecting is not gravitational waves, but ether turbulence of a completely different nature from the hmm. ordinary Michelson uh, light speed variation. I'll tell you what, hold it there. Probably they probably filter out the Michelson type uh, or the, the ether drift type of uh, as a systematic uh, variable. Okay. So they we just, are at the top of the hour. Out. Let me pause you there. My guest this morning is James DeMeo talking about an ether a spiraling motion, which gives me a great excuse to play one of my favorite songs, The Windmills of Your Mind. Spirals within spirals. Like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon. Like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon. Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its fame. And the world is like an apple whirling silently in space. Like the circles that you find in the windows of your mind. Like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its own. Down the hollow to the capital. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Like a door that keeps revolving in a half-forgotten dream. All the ripples from a pebble, someone tossed in the stream. Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minute of its face. And the world is like an apple, whirling silently in that you find in the windows of your mind. Jeez, that chant. Welcome back, everyone. That, I mean, that is one of the most incredible songs I can imagine because it describes eloquently, very eloquently, all these complex motions. Because, Jim, if we're being pushed along by an interactive ether, and boy, have I got some questions for you on that not only through the galaxy, but if we're being moved by intergalactic winds around the Virgo cluster and in the direction of the dark attractor or the great attractor, and in other words, motions upon motions upon motions, then it is like the windmills of your mind because the spiraling vortices are endless and enveloping and can explain in terms of galaxies this idea of dark matter itself well it spirals within spirals within spirals and uh it it's a phenomenon that i believe goes and reich was again the genius behind this if you look at the the motions of microscopic organisms they're often uh moving in a spiral turning manner they're not necessarily just uh moving forward if you can get an image of them in the microscope where you can see their surface features they're often turning and twisting as they move or trees that grow with a with a spiral torque as they move upwards or other kinds of plants similar kinds of spiral features or then you look at the the uh, cyclonic storm systems that we see from the weather satellites or the tornadoes or the Hurricanes, another set of spirals, spiral forms at a larger, at a larger scale. And then the, earth, the moon moving around the earth and then the earth moving around the sun. And then the sun solar system uh, motions towards the center of the, of the galaxy in a large sweeping spiral vortex itself. And who knows, uh, spirals within spiral mm. galaxies, uh, 
there are no what was his name the, the two actually <laughs> university of kansas uh, physicists talked about the optical polarization of galactic light shows it to be a spiral form feature hmm. by the way before we go on of, before we go on let me give out the number if you want to join the conversation, talk to Jim, ask him a couple of questions. Um, area code 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. to join the conversation. Let me go to Radio with Pictures again. If you go to uh, the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner which says very boldly, my, uh, my political statement, the greatest scientific cover-up in history with Dr. James DeMeo. Click on the banner that will take you to the um, guest page, scroll down in radio with pictures to my item number three. Click on number three, Jim, you can do this too. This is an incredible Galax NASA satellite image of our closest grand island universe right next door little over 2 million light years away, called M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. Take a look at that galaxy and tell me how the spiral vorticular motions of ether slash orgone slash the torsion field, which is what I think we're talking about, explain these incredibly beautiful, phantasmagorical, astonishing spiral uh, forms. Well, you know, the whole theory of dark matter was created because of, of gravitational anomalies and the, the velocities at the, ex, at the far out edge of the uh, armbands. Yeah, Vera Rubin, one of the few women in astrophysics, um, about 30 years ago was measuring Doppler shifts in galaxies to try to see how they rotate, if they rotated like a Keplerian in an orbit where the inner parts of the galaxy spun around much faster than the outer parts. And she was astonished, and then the whole field was astonished to find that they don't, they don't move like the planets around the sun, if you're on the Earth, you know, in, a, in the same plane. They appear to be moving more like an LP record with something funny going on in the inner part near the hole where you put it on the spindle on the record player. But the outer parts of the galaxy all appear to move at about the same speed, which is totally, totally, totally non-Keplerian, which thereby developed this idea that to explain this with standard Newtonian gravitational theory or relativity, you needed a huge glob, a globe, surrounding these spiral forms of invisible dark matter, which interacted yeah. with the visible stars by a gravity, but no other way, and if you put this huge invisible globe uh, like, like a trillion, trillion, trillion gnats flying around a lamppost in the middle of the night, a lit lamp, you would be able to explain gravitationally why the radial curve of velocity kind of flattened out and became like an LP record. You and Reich have a much more elegant idea. Well, it's, it's basically that the, the velocity of the ether coming in from space is already at a very high velocity in the external parts. And it stays at that velocity until it gets closer towards the center where uh, its, its angular velocity 
actually increases. Where that's the swept angle that turns per unit of time uh, versus the absolute velocity. So the absolute velocity slows down even as the angular velocity is uh, staying at a high, high rate. And uh, the the need for them to postulate matter is because they view the universe as having no such thing as an ether which could give gravitational effects or motion to uh, things like the spiraling galaxies, much less uh, spire, uh, you know, the orbits around uh, planets around suns and so on. Now, the interesting thing is if you look at dark matter, how do they describe it? They have two major categories. One is called the machos, and the other is called the wimps. <laughs> that seems um, almost <clears throat> Freudian. Weakly interacting massive particles versus massive uh, MAC, uh, massive uh, something objects. Oh, the ma machos are like Jupiter-sized planets uh, or dark stars, neutron st uh, stars that are, are, are invisible which exist in extremely high abundance in the per outer parts of galaxies to give them that stiffening gravitational effect. Or they, they'll say there's a millions of, uh, of certain classes of black holes that exist. In other words, they have this phenomenon, they can't explain it, so they salt it up with invisible particles that nobody has ever seen. In contrast the to the actual measurements of an ether drift by Michelson, Morley, and Miller. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, uh, and not just them. There, as I, as I mentioned, Galev's work, uh, Munera's work. Uh, Munera actually got 18.5 meters per second velocity, and his measurements are made up at Bogota, which is even higher than Mount Wilson. Oh, so he's around 14,000 compared to Mount Wilson at six. Uh, around 12, actually, okay. but it's it's yeah, so it's much higher. And uh, again, uh, there's a velocity uh, uh, altitude relationship that is roughly it plotted. It almost out. sounds to me, Jim, like the ether entrained by the Earth is banded. If you take the, you know, the 300-foot tall hill in Cleveland, and then Mount Wilson, and then the Bogota Andes experiments, the modern guy Munez, and you plot them on a graph, it's not I've linear. It's not linear. It appears to be stepped, like the, the ether had layers. Well, it's a it's a variation that, um, if I can give you an average, I'm looking for the part in my book where I, where I wrote this so I can be accurate. Um, there's a variation that is, um, it's approximately one kilometers per second increase for each 150 meters of altitude that's the average okay and it goes it goes straight on up uh from the near zero velocity in, in a certain set of experiments around two two kilometers per second velocity uh, in uh Galev's part of the uh, the uh ukraine where he did his experiments very flat very low elevation all the way up to uh, Munera's work in, at Bogota. But it's uh, it's very sketchy, and what we need is dozens more of such experiments to be undertaken okay, using the principles that have been elucidated by Miller. Talk about, you know, we have Dayton Miller's stuff in the, in the Roaring Twenties, and then we have nothing 
until when? What are the list of modern experiments that tried to measure this ether drift with modern technologies like microwaves and lasers oh, and all the cool well, they, stuff? They start uh, doing this almost, uh, I would say, uh, in the 40s, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, but they're often not trying to uh, to to look for the ether drift they're trying to improve the the uh the the error margins of relativity and often they're postulating different kinds of ether a gaseous uh quantum foam is one idea that's been floated around they're they're using different terms is, isn't, the isn't that the guy in australia cahill that's correct and uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think that the original theory, need with the, with the small corrections made by the, what we know about the Earth entrainment features, you have to stick with that because that's what the best experiments showed, and that's what gave the best results. And then you've got somebody like Reich who had a completely different set of experiments, but nevertheless concluded very very similar kinds of things, um, which could you know ether drift experiments adds to his body of knowledge just as his body of knowledge adds to the cosmic ether uh knowledge so there there are some things that are really congruent in this collection of like these 17 factors and some things that are not so congruent and there's a lot of experiments been have been done using things like masers and so forth different kinds of uh of uh, experimental techniques that did not um get any significant result and they, they are happy to claim a, a null or a negative result from it um are you I, aware almost oh let me just make this one point okay. here almost in every case where they're making that negative interpretation they have their interferometer in a basement in a, a, a deep uh in a in a metal shield um, that that seems to be the case in every one of the negative experiments. They've got these things locked down inside of a basement location, inside of a metal container, and they're blocking whatever ether flow there might be by virtue of the experimental design that they create. Now, are these experiments looking for ether, or are they looking to measure relativity? <clears throat> and ether is kind of the farthest thing from their mind, so they don't think about the surroundings, the basement, the heavy mass... Uh, well, both, a bit of both. Um, it depends upon the experimenter. And uh, like I say, the ones who got the best, most clear positive result, they stuck, they were looking for the ether and they followed the principles of Miller with uh, not shielding the device, using it in the open air, uh, exposed, to, uh, exposed to the ether itself and not shielding it behind metal or concrete barriers or stone basement buildings and so on. Are you familiar, this is the question I want to ask a moment ago, are you familiar with the huge disparity between the JPL measurements of the scale of the solar system based on radar bounced off Venus and the measurements of the scale of the solar system based on optical measurements of the flyby through the inner solar system of the little asteroid Eros going back through the 20s and 30s and 40s. And, no, the, and the, there's a huge disparity between the length of the astronomical unit based on radar measurements of Venus orbit as defined by JPL, NASA, 
And these earlier astronomical measurements of the Eros flybys, which depend on trigonometry and Keplerian analysis of orbits and stuff like that, and they've never been resolved. I mean, they claim they've resolved them, but I always thought that the reason NASA parked the spacecraft in orbit around Eros several years ago was because they really themselves wanted to figure out the difference between the two different ways of measuring the distance scale of the solar system, and they never reported the results of those comparative measurements. Um, I'm not surprised. I've, I've stumbled across a few things like that myself. But, you know, one of the bigger th controversies in astronomy uh, and astrophysics today was is the whole uh, validity question of the Hubble con uh, of the uh, Hubble um, redshift distance indication. Uh, yeah, there's a huge controversy there. There are two ways of measuring it, and they both are consistent with each other, but they're both diametrically opposed to the other way of measuring. Well, this uh, this I'm I'm less familiar with than I am with uh, the, the more fundamental arguments of people like Halton Arp, who made photographs of uh, objects in space uh, that are connected together by luminous bridges of, of, of mm -hmm. uh, connection, but one has an extremely high redshift and the other one has an extremely low redshift. And they're right so beside each object, other in space. Yeah. And he made so many photographs of these that they eventually banned him from using the, the very telescopes that he helped to build. Uh, the big Palomar Observatory in particular. And, uh, yeah, he was literally um, hounded out of American astrophysics from having been called the dean of American astrophysics simply because he challenged, he dares challenged a, sac a sacrament of modern astrophysics. Well, they ultimately wouldn't let him use, distance they wouldn't let him use the big telescopes like the 200-inch on Palomar or the Keck telescope or the Chilean telescopes or whatever, he was, I mean, why isn't there a huge political revolution of other scientists, other astronomers, if one of their own can basically politically made a heretic and banished to the outer kingdom? Well, in the modern world, it's a very familiar reason, and it's called money. The amount of money that goes into these big projects, which are validating, supposedly validating the Einstein theory or the Big Bang theory is so vast. I mean, you look at these big particle accelerators or the LIGO project uh, or some of these other projects that they do, they are getting you know, millions, if not billions of dollars per year, and they're grinding out PhD dissertations on the minutia of, the, of what they're doing, all of which is within the context of the Einstein theory of relativity or with Big Bang cosmology. So with with the ether, with a dynamic ether or and other kinds of ether, the the whole fabric of this modern astrophysical theory collapses like a house of cards, just like Einstein expressed. And uh, this is being protected by political uh, political backstabbing and firings of people and a whole host of very ugly kinds of things that one normally doesn't associate with science. But I, I always like to tell people that. Uh, the scientists are not any different from the politicians that we elect. Mm -hmm. The only difference is, is that they're smarter and they can cover up what they 
they're they're on ethical things a whole lot better. Well, because they're talking to a very specialized in crowd and the vast general public haven't a clue what they're fighting about. That's that's correct. Except in some cases, it does spill into the popular mind, like with the the controversies about so-called climate change, where the people who are pushing the CO2 theory uh, got caught with these climate gate memos where they were openly scheming on the Internet on how they were going to destroy this or that person because their research didn't confirm the expected theory. Hmm. So that kind of thing goes on, not just in uh, in science, uh, but it goes on in medicine and a whole lot of other things where big, big money is at stake depending upon how the theory flops one way or the other. It seems to me we're now in the 21st century. We have a whole group of people we call citizen scientists. We have a whole bunch of private guys like Musk and Bezos and a litany of private corporations that I've been kind of talking to because we're looking at our own space experiments for enterprise. There's a whole new dawn in terms of private, non-governmental, capitalized science experiments, not on Earth. But in space, what kind of space experiments would you create, would you tinker together that could be done independent of big science, the big establishment of academia that could then be published like on the Internet and verified by other private enterprise groups that could do the same experiments in space? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, the first thing I would do is convene a panel of heretics <laughs> of all the these astro- astronomers who have had unorthodox ideas, and we could probably put together a half dozen or more uh, of crucial experiments that nobody ever wants to see done uh, from the orthodox camp. If the system so, was honest and we could get access to the space station, maybe through the Russians, what kind of experiment in the space station with modern lasers and optics could be put together because you're moving at 17,500 miles an hour around the earth and you're several hundred miles, 250 miles upstairs, much higher than the Andes. What would you expect to see above the layered and trained ether and B, what kind of gadgets would you need to measure it from space, from the space station to start with? Well, I would, I would think if uh, either a Type 1 or a Type 2 type of optical interferometer was constructed, and you can make the Type 1s uh, kind of an old-fashioned idea, which I describe in my book. It doesn't require the big, long lengths of light path. You could make one that's uh, a meter in size, and, That's three uh, feet for you English people. Yes, uh, <laughs> approximately three feet. Uh, and then have a, a optical window in the space station where you could put this thing and set it to work over a period of uh, some months or a year. There's, or, there's a place a called the cupola, which is surrounded by windows. Yeah, there you go. So this thing could be set uh, or it could just be tethered to the outside and run constantly with its data stream uh, gathered and and then uh, subjected to analysis. So um, I would expect it would show higher velocities of ether motion and uh, roughly the same set of uh, 
cosmological well, vectors as have been determined. You can, you can now buy these laser-driven interferometers, I think, off the shelf from Edmund Scientific or other there are optical interfer optical interfer or uh, interferometers for uh, for uh, gyroscopic determinations or accelerometer. You mean like the ring gyros that are used for ring ring gyroscopes? That's the word yeah. I was searching for you. Okay. This comes from the work of Sagmac uh, years ago, and Sagmac uh, talk about Sagmac's experiments. Uh, give us he made a tabletop thing. experiment uh, interferometer where. Um, on a, on a rotating platform, one light beam is traveling clockwise and the other light beam is traveling counterclockwise. Okay. And by empty space determinations, there should be no real variation between the two directions of light beam. According to Einstein, light speed is constant, and so the, the, the variations should be zero. And so the fringes should lie over each other perfectly. There should be no difference, no, no changes. No movements of the fringes. No movements. Exactly. Okay. And, uh, and actually, it showed an effect. And uh, it showed an effect that was significant. And significant enough that modern optical uh, interferometers, uh, what, uh, what, you, you said it. The ring gyros. The ring gyroscopes are put into um, all of the big jet aircraft and into satellites uh, for stability determination. Into and missiles, very, very the DOD, our national security, depends on the fact that Einstein is wrong. Well, there you go. Which is not acknowledged I mean, by the rest of the culture. It, you know, well, the Einsteinians have a nice uh, bailout. They say, well... Um, special uh, special relativity doesn't apply in rotating systems, you know, uh, and other kinds of things. But you know, when is something not in a rotating? I was going to say most of the universe is spinning, rotating. Absolutely. So uh, the first three laws of hyperdimensional physics are rotation, rotation, rotation. Yeah. So they well, just basically wave away these ring gyros because ring gyros, when they were introduced, are incredible because they never ever. Wear out is not the wrong term. They they don't degrade in their measurements. Like when you have a mechanical gyroscope, like was used in the in the Apollo missions to and from the moon, they would consistently have to update what they call update the platform, meaning the inertial yep. measurement unit, with optical star sights, literal sextant sightings, or data from the Earth, so they could correct for the slow drift and and degradation of the data from the mechanical gyroscopes. With an optical laser ring gyro, there's no friction. There's nothing moving. There's nothing that wears out. There's no degradation of your ring gyro results for a thousand years. Well, it's uh, it's an inconvenience, you see. <laughs> oh, an inconvenient, an inconvenient truth. Where did I hear that before? For the, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of things like this. Uh, the uh, the ring gyroscopes or optical gyroscopes they're they're just one of of a number of uh, contradictions in the modern science about things that confirm the ether but which are conveniently ignored. So well, if we have GPS satellites and they're zipping back and forth at all kinds of velocities and angles compared to receivers on the ground. And hold this for when we come back because we're coming up on a break at the bottom of the hour. I measured myself incredible variances of so-called GPS uh, latitude and longitude measurements at a place called 
Coral Castle. And it was like when I was trying to observe satellites across the castle, I get weird divergent readings. When I took the same readings down the street a few hundred feet away, they were totally stable. So there was something like a bubble over the Coral Castle architecture there near Homestead that was interfering with the satellite transmissions. And my thought was, well, the radio frequencies are being slowed down differentially because of the concentration of the ether over the Coral Castle ensemble of limestone architecture. And I was never able to get back uh, there before Robin died to do the measurements again and again. I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour, so why don't we uh, hold it? And when I when we come back, I've got a couple of, I hope, important questions to ask. My guest this morning is Jim DeMeo, Dr. James DeMeo, and we're talking about the ether. In the next half hour, you can join us if you call 917-889-8802, or you can um, uh, listen for a couple of my questions because they're going to be kind of out there. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I call this ether music. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, 19th of October. If you want to join the conversation, if you've got a pithy question, or even a question without a pith helmet, 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. And we're joined again by Dr. James DeMeo, who has written this hell of an interesting book about the ether, what I'm calling the greatest scientific cover-up in history, because if it's acknowledged, it could then be engineered. And one of the first things that would fall out of the engineering is real anti-gravity. 
Jim, let's pick it up there. If, if, if the ether was acknowledged by science and engineering, what could be done? Talk a bit about these very intriguing chemical and biochemical experiments that show the intricate interconnection of the ether slash orgone with people's health and well-being and the change of chemistry over the span of just, just a year. Well, if you know, you're you're referencing the work of Reich, the work of Picardi. Um, Reich, of course, we've we've talked at length about in, in a prior interview. Many, you, many, you, yes. <laughs> and uh, but the orgone accumulator is a is a world class discovery where you can build up a higher density of this cosmic energy inside of it as compared to outside of it. And uh, this this was shown by Reich and and numerous other physicians. Uh, scientists that it will boost your health, it boosts your immune system, it uh, it can speed the healing of wounds. Uh, cancer tumors in mice have been shown to uh, be slowed or reduced, uh, such that mice uh, treated in the accumulator for an hour a day were uh, living 300% longer than the control group. That was an experiment from Reich. Uh, replications by Dr. Blasband, uh, it was a 200% increase. So what's going on? This, if the ether exists, then it must have played a role in biology and evolution over the millennia of time. And uh, what we're seeing is that Reich was somebody who discovered the same phenomenon. He gave it a different name altogether. He was actually very upset that the ether had been discarded. And if I could read a small quote from Reich, what he wrote on this, he says, there's no such thing as empty space. There exists no vacuum. Space reveals definite physical qualities, which can be observed and demonstrated. Some can be reproduced experimentally. Now, this is in a book he wrote in 1948 called Ether, God and Devil. Uh, which you can still get. It was on the ban and burn list from those years, as was his other book, Cosmic Superimposition. But he did physical experiments as well, uh, showing that the interior of the accumulator had a higher temperature. It had a higher electrostatic or electrical density. Um, it had other kinds of, of uh, unusual properties that showed that the physics of the base inside of it was different from outside in the ordinary atmosphere. Okay, let me let me ask let me ask a couple of things. Reich and Einstein actually met, and Einstein received as a temporary loan gift an accumulator from Reich there in yes. in Princeton, New Jersey. Talk a bit about that and what happened or didn't happen. Well, Reich was looking to get somebody in the American scientific scene to appreciate his work on the orgone energy. And so Einstein was a fellow socialist. They were both socialists back in uh, Germany uh, in opposition to Hitler. 
So uh, he struck out, he had a correspondence with Einstein offering to try, he wanted to show him his findings with the organ accumulator, specifically the temperature variation, which is a, um, a temperature anomaly inside the accumulator is a violation of the second law of thermodynamics because it gets slightly warmer temperature spontaneously. I've done a very tightly controlled experiment on this, so I know it's, uh, it's, tr it's a true thing. Okay, so he, Einstein agrees to meet Reich. They meet at his home in Princeton. They spend uh, five or six hours talking into the late hours of night about their experiences in Germany and then about the orgone energy discovery. And Einstein agrees he, he'll keep uh, the, the small orgone accumulator device that Reich is loaning to him so he can test for this temperature effect himself. Now, a few days later, Einstein reports that he has replicated the experiment and got positive result. Hmm. But, he says, uh, my assistant uh, points out to me that this is only this is an effect of uh, ordinary air convection in the room. It isn't uh, due to orgone energy or anything like that. So, Reich didn't know anything about Miller. He didn't know that Einstein played a, a key role in the discarding and suppression of Miller's result. And, uh, and Einstein used the temperature argument against Miller. He said, well, your, your ether drift experiments are just a thermal artifact. And this was never true. Miller did very tight, controlled experiments to show it wasn't a thermal now, artifact. Now, when you say thermal, you don't mean like in the organ accumulator. You mean sunlight in, heating in the, the, the structure on Mount Wilson where he was measuring, and it was too much heating on one side will warp the mirrors and – give you spurious results and all that. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, oh, the experiments ran at nighttime, too, and they got very good results at night and in the day. You know, He insulated the thing. The, the hut was insulated. It was all very tightly controlled against such things. But Einstein just pulled that out of the air. Oh, it's thermal effects. And uh, he did the same to Reich, the exact same thing. And Reich didn't know anything about the Miller affair with, mm -hmm. with Einstein. So, um, yeah, and it, it was a blow to Reich, and, and years later, um, Reich actually published their correspondence in a little booklet you can still get it called The Einstein Affair. It's available from the Wilhelm Reich Museum. And, of course, so it's, it's, described in, in, it's described in your book in great detail, The Dynamic yes. Ether of Cosmic Space, and the link for the book is on the website in uh, – Radio with pictures and Jim's section, so you can click on it, and you can buy the book tonight. And I guarantee you, once you get this in your hands, you're not going to want to put it down. It's the biggest scientific mystery story of all time. It's the biggest cover-up because it leads to so many implications. Talk about Picardi. Um, yeah, Picardi. Giorgio Picardi was an Italian scientist at the University of uh, Florence, I believe. And uh, he was doing uh, experiments on phase change chemistry, like the precipitation of bismuth chloride. It's a, kind of a common experiment done in chemistry classes to show students that you can take a certain quantity of the bismuth and a certain quantity of salt, and you can put them in an acid solution. And if you put quantitative measures on everything, then you get a quantitative predictable amount of the bismuth chloride as a product. 
And what you mean, this is the stuff that so, falls out of solution at the bottom yeah, of the, the precipitate. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it's a way to teach chemistry students that there is a there's a quantitative thing going on in in chemis, chemical analysis, mm. and it's more or less tr- it's for all extents and purposes it's it's a true thing. Oh, I'm but having terrible flashback. Variation. I'm having terrible flashback on moles. Ah. Anyway, go ahead. There's a there's a slight variation in this phenomenon, which Picardi found it correlated with sunspots. It correlated with certain weather events, but over the long haul, it correlated with a cosmic factor, which he felt had something to do with the spiral form motion of the Earth in space, and he uh, identified the maximum velocity of this spiral form motion, which gave the strongest effects to skew his experiments, was at this um, approximate 16-hour sidereal location in the cosmos. Again, Parcardi is one of these people who uh, I list as the 17 independently determined vectors. In his case, it was determined by basic chemical experiments. Didn't he, didn't he build a gorgeous physical hand-crank model of this spiraling motion in the Earth and the Sun and the galaxy? Yes. And, and yes, that's I have pictures of it. In your book, yes. Yes, but I've never, I never saw it actually in operation, but it was a marvelous little device. And when I saw that, it was like an aha moment, you know, because it, it matched Reich's uh, spiral diagrams. It matched my own. It matched um, what we saw in the, in the different uh, ether drift experiments, too. And see, what's crucial here is Picardi didn't know about Reich. Reich didn't know about Picardi. And neither one of them knew about you because they were earlier. Or Miller. Uh, and Miller. They were, they were much earlier than me. And they're all coming to the same conclusions based on not only total separate experiments, but separate conceptual experiments, chemistry, precipitation in a flask in a laboratory versus optical fringe measurements of light bouncing around mirrors on the top of Mount Wilson. I mean, you can't get any more independent than that. Yeah, or, or Brown's work on the, uh, the, ver- the uh, cycles in uh, animal uh, activity in the biological rhythm uh, determinations. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, you, the the example which I'm sure you've heard before is if you had ten blind scientists or let's say seventeen blind <laughs> scientists in a room, okay, <laughs> and there's an elephant there, and they're each one grabbing a different part of the elephant and describing it, and they're describing it in great detail. One grabs the the leg, and he gives you a totally accurate, 100% uh, good description of the leg. And another one grabs the trunk, and he's giving you a totally accurate description of the trunk in great detail. Another one grabs the tusk. Another one grabs the tail. Another one is feeling the belly. They're all 100% accurate in everything that they're saying, but they're 100% totally wrong in that they're describing completely different things when in, in reality, it's all one and the same thing, and they just don't realize it. That is the problem with modern astrophysics. Which means why that the political have... fix is in. That's why I call this the greatest cover-up in science history. Yes, political, but also with an emotional component. Uh, that Just a denial. You know, Reich once – I'll use my own analogy. If, if you were a caveman who lived in a cave for all your life, 
And now suddenly you come out of the cave on a starry night when the galaxy is out there. You're going to look at that and you're going to freak out and run back into your cave. Hmm. It's just too much, too overwhelming. Yeah, but how do scientists so, become scientists if they're going to freak out at something totally incredibly new with such implications for making humanity's life on Earth so much better? Well, even just to understand the nature of reality in a, in a better way. But by definition, part that makes humanity that, better. Part of the reason is that the scientists who have the capacity to look up in the sky, having been in the cave all their life, mm -hmm. in my analogy, those kind of scientists are weeded out by the university system before they ever get their PhD, for the most part. Very few of them make it through. Because if they start talking about the grand cosmos that nobody else is who's still in the cave, you know, he's saying, come on out in the cave and take a look out here. This is really marvelous. And the other ones down there are saying, no, absolutely not. You know, we're, we're busy describing the stalactites and the, so on. As you may have heard, we have some calls. Some people are calling my home phone number on the desk here. The number you want to call if you want to get on the air is 917 889-8802 and we do have some calls. You want to take a couple and see what's up? Sure. Okay. Area code 727 you are on the other side of midnight. Yeah uh, that's a beautiful video and I, I, I never thought of it and I, I, I you had it on one other guest a similar video and, and a lot of astro astronomers uh, have never thought of it that way but I was thinking that that video is still three dimensions Imagine what that video would look if you had a way to make it into all the different dimensions, like the sixth, seventh, eighth. Mm. I mean, it would be so complex, and so uh, there's no way we can do that. But um, well, but it, you it, wind up with the results in three dimensions because we live in three dimensions, yeah, like the shadows right. of of higher right. level geometry. Do you have exactly. a question for Jim? Yeah, I was wondering, um, how do you feel? Why do you? By the way, you did not give us your name. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Stephen in Florida. Hi, Stephen. Yeah. I was wondering, I don't think this is his field, but I'll be very brief here. Would, how would this affect astrology? And I'll hang up and listen. Well, um, that's hard for me to, to figure. Um, uh, if you could imagine, however, that planet is being moved along by streams of cosmic ether, maybe there's a downstream effect whereby turbulences or something like this from an outer planet might affect uh, something that's going on closer to the sun. I don't know. It's a, That's a tough question. So I'm, I'm going to answer it with I, I really don't know. Well, let me jump in because Rick Levine, who's our resident hyperdimensional astrologer, and I have discussed this. If Picardi was measuring chemistry, the changes with ether flow, then biology is chemistry. Consciousness, if you think of the brain model, at one level is chemistry. It's a lot more, but at least it starts out with the brain chemistry. So there's got to be, quote, astrological effects because as you're changing all these planet configurations in this system, the flow of ether among and between them has got to change, does it not? Well, at least it provides a mechanism whereby something like that could be investigated. Okay, um, and that's the major difference: is that such a thing is not ruled. It, such a thing is is ruled out by the empty space theory. 
at least they, you know you have to really stretch yourself to come up with a theory but with a cosmic ether maybe there would be some effect you know there was the work of Michel Gauquelin who uh, who found um, differences and changes in human behavior according to the birth time mm, the French their, guy yeah uh, of the people and his work was very systematically done and I, I, I read his books and I was convinced that he probably was was correct that there was some effect but he also angered the astrologers because he couldn't find anything that um, validated the astrological houses <laughs> and, uh, and so forth he documented a planetary effect on human behavior but not the usual astrological so he made both sides mad which of course is one uh, earmark of when you're on to truth you're kind of even-handed okay let's yeah. let's go to area code 760 you are on the air on the other side of midnight. Hello, Richard. Hello, Dr. DeMail. Hello. You're on the air. Yes. Hi, Ron. Yeah. I know this voice. I, I know yeah. the voice. Yes, and the hoverboard problem. Uh, I, this is perfect because I haven't called in. I've been listening to this, but it's all been fascinating. And it just, I said, okay, fine. This is great. Uh, however, on the subject of the uh, ether field, what is the effect of that physiologically? Because I let me say this in 30 seconds. When I was very small, back in the 50s, uh, we went to the Coral Castle. I insisted. Nobody else in the family wanted to go there when we were on our family trip, but I had to go. And as soon as I approached the property, I had this overwhelming vertigo hit me. And that used to happen once in a while when I was that young. And it was it persists time I was there, but I fought through it because I really wanted to see the place, walk around, work the doors, sit in the chair, all that stuff that you used to be able to do. And I, I wonder, is this related to the ether? Well, uh, that's another I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I mean, I've been to the Coral Castle. I grew up in Florida. I went to the Serpentarium, too. That's another subject. Uh, but oh, yeah. Coral Castle was fascinating. And... Uh, I came away with a big wow, you know, I, and I still feel that way about it. It's a mis place of great mystery. And um, so I, I, I didn't experience any kind of uh, vertigo or anything like that, but I was fascinated, uh, you know, and those were the years where, you, where, like you say, you could go and push and touch things and climb on things. And uh, I came away, uh, it was another, another thing to consider in, in uh, things that, modern science has a problem to explain well you know there were reports published back when they were first putting in the uh, power lines across the united states back in the early early 20th century i guess uh from it was something like 10 percent of the population responded to the surveys saying that they were they were having a negative effect on them you know the electromagnetic yes, field I've I've heard of that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I, 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 probably what this I, is what's behind uh, for sensitive people. It's a similar kinds of things. Yeah. That, well, that was me. It's less now than when I was a little kid, but I think that's fairly common. Hmm. Anything else, Ron? Yeah, I, no, I just thought I'd toss that out. I mean, I've got something about Reich, but it's you haven't been, really been talking about it, so it would just derail things in the last part of the show. Um, okay. Great show. Glad to listen. Thank you, Ron. If you Thank want to join the conversation, we've got about 10 minutes to go to the end of the show. 
917-889-8802. Let me throw in a couple of really intriguing questions. <clears throat> We've established tonight that A, there is an ether. It's been measured multiple times, both by, you know, 1800s experiments all the way through to the 20th, 21st century through all kinds of different means. Would you agree with that, Jim? I would. Okay. The ether is not just a static jello, very, very fine in interplanetary interstellar space, which objects move through seamlessly, effortlessly, frictionlessly. It interacts with objects. In uh, Newton's famous letter, he talks about it, you know, uh, penetrating every pore, that kind of thing. If that's going on, and it's physically has a self-gravitational interaction with its own streams, as well as with masses like the Earth, the Sun, stars, whatever, that must generate a tremendous amount of heat. Where does that heat go? in the planet if rice is measuring temperatures in an orgone accumulator which is really concentrated ether of a you know fractions of a degree maybe half a degree where does the heat of the interaction of the ether with the planets and with stars go and dissipate or is it unmodeled unrecognized it's observed but they haven't put it in the right part of the equation well, you know, the conventional theory of the heat inside the, the depths of the Earth is that it's the product of radioactive material. Right. And when have you ever heard of a volcano erupting and everybody's told to run away because it's radioactively hot? I mean, what are banning you well, from Well, the radioactivity is supposed to be in the core thousands of miles below the level where the lavas, where the uh, mantle you know, plasticity well, comes up. Yes, I understand that, but it, it, it's so unknown, we really don't know very much about it. And if it really was radioactive, then one would expect at least some of it to creep out here and there. Uh, but it could be that the ether, as it moves down deep into the Earth, it it's con further condenses, and as it does so, interacts with matter even more. And... Uh, exhibits a great deal of heat. I, I'm just speculating. Hmm. Uh, or, then, or, then, or does it become matter and result in expanding planets and stars? Yes, that, uh, that's an idea as well. As, uh, that it's a lesser known theory in geology, but it's not one that, it's not considered in the same category, let's say, as hollow earth or flat earth or that kind of stuff. But the idea of the expanding Earth was uh, was given legitimacy in the 1800s more than today. So through based the Einstein, the, based so, upon the geographical variations of coastlines and things that that right. Alfred Wegener and the continental drift theory later talked about. Well, I've, I've had Neil Adams on, who was a vigorous proponent of the um, uh, expanding Earth model, and I, of course, have looked at all the NASA data now and all kinds of other planets, including the moons of Jupiter, Saturn, whatever. And an awful lot of that topology could be explained with the simple fact that matter is is created by the absorption and conversion of ether through the E equals MC squared equation, the old Einstein, which, by the way, he borrowed that. It wasn't his original to him. And so that's where the excess energy goes. It goes into creating matter in every physical object and winds up expanding and increasing its mass. 
Well, Reich was of the uh, opinion, and I think he, I agree with that, that the that the ether itself, or the orgon energy, whatever you want to call it, it's as it condenses, it goes from a low mass or a mass-free condition mm-hmm. towards creating matter, and then it binds itself to the matter, and then you get aggregations of matter. So, mm. you know, out in space, for example, um, you have things like the three-degree blackbody radiation, which is being attributed to motion in the universe, or at least the anisotropy, the variation in it. But it's, I think it's just intrinsically warmer or cooler parts in the universe, and that this very tiny thermal energy out there in, in the cosmos is created by the, the innate friction of the, of the ether um, energy rubbing up against itself or in the process of creating a little bits of matter where it congeals and so on. So it's a it's a it's a matter of uh, of kinetic versus uh, kinetic energy giving a slight warming effect throughout the universe, but it also it, it it makes a certain sense that if it's penetrating deep into the earth, that it it, it is a source of the same kind of matter creation. Maybe yeah, and this could so. all be done in terms of models of equations. Hey, we have a lot of people waiting in line. You waited too late, folks. Call in earlier next time, and you'll get on the air. We've got a couple minutes till the end of the show. Plug your incredibly interesting book. Yes. Well, this book, The Dynamic Ether of Cosmic Space, Correcting a Major Error in Modern Science, it goes through all the things we've talked about tonight and a whole lot more in great detail. It's got uh, over 100 illustrations and graphs and photographs from older uh, to more modern ether drift experiments. And it's got a good index, a good bibliography with uh, web references, and so it, it'll it'll blow your mind. And uh, it's all it's not it's more fact, it's historical fact and experimental fact. And uh, I try to stick to facts as as precisely as I can. Only in the conclusions do I sort of let my imagination wander a bit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Well, what are you going to do for for the for part two? Well, uh, already I've got a list of things that people are educating me about, the things that I didn't mention that I, sh- if I had time, I would have included them. So part two is going to be an expansion of the implications and the evidence. Well, it seems to me that part two should include a heavy dose of citizen scientists, modern experimenters with lasers, access to CubeSats, missions going to the moon, private missions. And we could get some extraordinary results if that was taken into account. Absolutely. Dr. James DeMeo, my guest this morning on the other side of midnight, I want to thank him uh, profusely for an extraordinarily interesting book, a really dynamite read. You do want to get that book, I guarantee you. If you click on the link on the website, it'll come to you very quickly, and you will not be able to put it down. Tomorrow night, we're going to shift gears. Dr. Richard Spence is our is our guest. We're going to try to tackle what the hell is going on in the Middle East. And I guarantee you, it's not what you think. It's much, much deeper. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.